Here is the latest Higher Summits forecast brought to you by our friends at the Mount Washington Observatory. Weather above treeline in the White Mountains is often wildly different than at our trailheads. Before you hike, check the Higher Summits forecast at mountwashington.org. Weather observers working at the nonprofit Mount Washington Observatory write this elevation-based forecast every morning and afternoon. Search and rescue teams, avalanche experts, and backcountry guides all rely on the Higher Summits forecast to anticipate weather conditions above treeline. You should too. Go to mountwashington.org or text FORECAST to 603 356 2137. And here is your forecast for Friday, February 2nd, and Saturday, February 3rd. Friday, mostly in the clouds with a chance of snow showers, possible snow accumulations of a trace to 2 inches, with a high falling to around 10 degrees. Winds will be northwest, shifting north at 15 to 30 miles per hour, increasing to 25 to 40 miles per hour, with a wind chill falling to 10 below to 20 below. Friday night, mostly in the clouds, trending towards clearing under partly cloudy skies. Slight chance of snow showers early. Possible snow accumulations of a trace to less than one inch with a low in the upper single digits. Winds will be north at 25 to 40 miles per hour, with gusts up to 50 miles per hour. Wind chill falling to 15 below to 25 below. Saturday, in the clear under mostly sunny skies. With a high in the upper single digits, winds will be north at 20 to 35 miles per hour, with gusts up to 45 miles per hour with a wind chill rising to 10 below to 20 below. from the Woodpecker Studio in the great state of New Hampshire. Welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Here are your hosts, Mike and Stump. Stomp, we are live, episode 138. Crack that beer. Cracking the beer. I got something to start yeah. the show I want to show you, Stomp. Okay, what is that? Let's, it's a... Oh! Yeah, I can see it. I can see it. It is it's, so frizzly. He's showing me. Yeah, it's an Avalanche brand butt sled for hiking. <laughs> 
sweet. Have you used it yet? I haven't. I haven't. I'm going to take it up tomorrow and see how how it goes. I I've been trying okay. to find these like Euro sleds, but I don't. I can't find a lot of them online. So, um, what do the uh, Euro sleds look like? They're like they're essentially like like this, except for this part's. Yeah. This has a footrest part, but they're essentially yeah, like so just cut off. And so Mike's sled, sled looks like uh, a figure eight with the with half of it a little smaller diameter yeah. for the feet and then two handles to hold on to. That's cool. Yeah, I read online they said it's pretty good for smaller people and I'm not a big guy, so I think it'd be okay. I don't know, Stomp, about you though. Yeah, that's not going to happen. I usually, I usually just go uh, right on my pants and my snow pants and that's always been good. Yeah, yeah. Andy, do you ever just like um, get a sled and rip down the, the cog? You, you must have done that. <laughs> I've, I've yet to do that. I've been tempted, yep. but uh, I've done some butt sledding, hiking, you know, and I've done, I did a season of snowmaking. So that's where I learned that putting some, some duct tape or, or tape like that on the, on the ski pants uh, can help you out with the coefficient of friction there. Yeah. You can get ripping. Yeah. <laughs> I did a little bit of butt sledding down Valley way um, last weekend, which was good, but uh, it was, it's a lot of, it's a lot of, a lot of effort because you only go like 50 to a hundred feet and then you got to get up again. And you know, my core, I haven't been doing a lot of sit up, so it's, it's hard. getting all banged up and bruised yeah exactly so all right so uh welcome to episode 138 of the sounds like a search and rescue podcast this week we are joined by andy valane so welcome andy welcome thanks for having me on yeah no problem so andy is the train master for the mount washington cog railway so the railway has been open to the Mount Washington Summit since 1869 and has been a rite of passage for generations of visitors to the Mount Washington Valley. So Andy's going to join us to talk about the history of the Mount Washington Cog Railway, the various events and activities available at the Cog, and then he'll share some details about the trains, the day-to-day operations, the maintenance of the track, and many other details. Um, All this plus Stomp is shopping for a new backpack, so we'll talk a little bit more about uh, some hiking gear. Uh, I'll do a recap on recent hike, a recent hike to Mount Adams and Mount Madison. Stomp has had some snowmobile adventures, and we'll do a refresher on communication safety devices while hiking. And then we've got some recent incidents in the world of search and rescue. And then we got breaking news: somebody drove a car through a pizza parlor down in Hudson, New Hampshire. Stomp. So we'll talk about that. <laughs> nice. So I'm drive through pizza. Yes, and I'm Stomp. Let's get started. This is Ben Pease from Hiking Buddies. We are a 501c3 nonprofit committed to reducing avoidable tragedies through education, impactful projects, and fostering a community of support. You can find out more at hikingbuddies.org. We wanted to say thank you to those who have supported our mission, and most importantly, say thanks to those who speak up, who ask questions, and who are willing to provide guidance and assistance on the trails when needed. You embody what it means to be a hiking buddy. And now, for all my newer hikers out there, here's this episode's Hiking Buddies Quick Tip. Get to know the parking area that you'll be going to before you head there for your hike. 
Note what the trailhead amenities are, if any. Know if there is a parking fee, latrines, does it fill up early, what size is the lot, and is there an alternative for Plan B? Let's get started. I wasn't going to put that story in, but I was like, well, you know, mom and uh, pops and dolls will be interested, so. Hey, it's hiking related. Right. People get pizza after a hike. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay, so <laughs> just to start off with Stomp, a listener, Paul Gamble, um, informed us that Guy Waterman has bushwhacked all of the uh, the 48 in winter. So I, I wasn't surprised mm. to read this just because I my understanding is, is that he... Bushwhacked each 48, 4,000 footer um, from the, um, what is that called? The like north, south, east, and west? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. So, was there a reason why he reached out to tell us that, or was it just a fun fact? Well, because we had talked about that, I had challenged uh, a recent guest about that. I think it may have been Dave and Liz. Okay. And uh, yeah, so it just tied into that conversation. Yeah, if you were going to bushwhack Mount Washington, what where would you, what direction would you go in some in winter? In winter, wow, that's a really good question. I think um, I suppose I would bushwhack from uh, just what is the um, the valley there, the headwall just south of Tuckerman's that people tend to go into. Bootsburg. It's it's adjacent. Yeah, I'd probably go. Somewhere in that area where uh, Glen Boulder is, yes, and you know, make oh, my Gulf way up that slides. way. Gulf slides, yeah. Gulf for, yep. yeah. I'd probably do something like that if it were, you know, not avalanche uh, conditions. But uh, yeah, it's a tough one. There's not very many. Or you could come in from the south, like uh, isolation route. Yeah, I don't know. That's what I yeah. was thinking. Is like maybe that dry river section there but i mean no matter what yeah. i mean you're in for a haul and like, i don't even know how oh, you, hell yeah yeah it'd be interesting if, if paul so paul if you're listening if and i'm sure this isn't one of guy's books but i would be curious what direction he used to get on to mount washington yeah yeah absolutely all right and then cool next up stomp i i hope you have the answer to this because i don't have the answer but cheswick so cheswick was a guest on our show I he's don't. a um through hiker he had done some of the crazy long hikes he had connected like the Pacific Crest Trail and the Continental Divide Trail and had done one continuous hike across uh, that that entire loop. I, I think it's called the Great Western Loop that he had done. So listeners yeah. had reached out and they wanted an update. So have you been checking out what's going on, Stump? Uh, well, that that's what spurred this on. Somebody had sent in a message saying, what's the update on Cheswick? And I have not heard anything about it, to be honest with you. So I did some digging on his pages, and there are no new updates that I can see. So uh, if anybody out there knows some news about Cheswick, let us know. He uh, he joined us twice in the past, and those episodes are really fascinating. So uh, worth a listen. But uh, yeah, let us know if you hear anything. I've not personally heard anything, but maybe there is. I mean, I'll just email him, see what he's up to. Well, I sent him a text. Oh, you did? Okay. He, didn't, he, he didn't get back to me. Oh, okay. Got it. All right. So, so maybe he is in the middle of something. All right. Cheswick is missing. We need to find him. Yeah, MIA. Interesting. All right, Stomp. Now I have one other thing. This is a very visual show, and we're a podcast, and we don't do video, so I don't know why I keep doing this, but I got a new <laughs> book. So 
Dave Shits in the Woods, who was on a couple of episodes ago, had recommended Shrouded Memories. So okay. I am currently, I started reading it, and um, they have a, uh, Andy, there's actually a story in here, I haven't read it yet, about a a shooting that happened in like the 1920s, 1930s. Mm-hmm. They say it was like at the cog, but it wasn't really at the cog. It was. It looks like it was um, across the street, closer to Zealand Campground. But yeah. I'm going to check that story out. Um, but I did read the first chapter, which is about the plane crash stomp that we've talked about before, that the two doctors in the 19, I think it's the 1950s, that um, were flying back and forth between like the southern part of the state. They were going up to Berlin. It was in like mm-hmm. late nineteen fifty. I think nineteen fifty nine. It was the winter of fifty nine, and they crashed in the Pemi by um, that Thoreau Trail there. The, the on the you know the back of the bonds there. Okay. Yep. Sure. So crazy story. So they they had crashed in like these minus ten degree weather. And unfortunately, like the rescue teams had been looking for them. They were flying. Civil Air Patrol was flying to look for them and couldn't find them. They did survive the crash for about four or five days, enough so that they could sort of write their families and attempt to light some fires and things like that. But they were pretty severely, one of them was severely injured during the crash and didn't survive yeah. long. And then the other doctor tried to make some snowshoes out of like bark on trees and things like that but he couldn't get out it was wow. so thick but they did find them eventually i think a couple of months later fascinating wow yeah but yeah so far i'm Incredible. impressed so shrouded memories and the author is floyd ramsey so okay recommend that awesome um all right stomp is dealing with a new gear issue here so he's going to retire his you, you have a 30 liter low alpine yeah that's a small pack. Yeah. That's not your big pack. No, I've got a low 90 that expands up to 115 that I use for winter. But I've been using my... Uh, yeah, which is ridiculous. But So you're going to keep that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep that one. But uh, I did a poll if, uh, you know, whether or not I was going to get a new pack or not. And it was pretty much split 50-50. But uh, yes, I am getting a new pack. And what I decided was I'm going to dedicate the old uh, 30 liter to uh, snowmobile sled guiding. Just it's First of all, it's a pain in the ass whopping out every season to, to get ready for the season. But uh, yeah, I'm just going to keep it all in that 30 and use it for the guiding. And uh, I've got a new low Alpine 65 in the mail coming my way. And what so. is... Um, so this is your... Is this like your summer pack, or is because I always thought you just used your giant pack for everything? Yeah, I don't. I don't really roll like that. No, I don't. I used to swap out for the summers. I would use that thirty liter, which I'm going to dedicate to snowmobiling now. Okay, um, which was a fairly small pack, but uh, the sixty five is going to be great. It's the happy medium for me. I like a big pack. I don't like having to rip everything out to get things. I like to look into it and see what I need immediately. Just grab it. And uh, I do pack a lot anyway. I, I th- these 30s never really uh, fit with my style, so I, the 65 should be nice. I just have to laugh because like my, my winter backpacking pack is a 55 liter, and then my day pack yeah. is like a 25 liter. So Stomp small <laughs> pack is a 65 liter. So I don't know, Andy, do you have, are, you a, are you a heavy packer when you go hiking? Or are you- Very, yeah, not going to identify uh, with that because uh, I used to – exclusively use a 75 for everything even if it was a day hike <laughs> okay and i was stubborn about it to the point where yeah yeah 
my girlfriend encouraged me to get a second pack, and I wound up getting um, an Osprey uh, Kestrel uh, 38, I believe it is, yep. for yep. Jake's. But I, I do, my 75 is an old Yellow Bean White Mountain 75 from like the early 2000s, and okay. I, I love it. But it's, uh, I definitely skew hiking heavy all the time. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, Stomp me has, he doesn't even think twice about throwing on like the 90 liter for a day, day hike, you know, and it, it's, it, it's fine for you though, Stomp. But is there a particular yeah, reason why you like these low packs? Well, uh, it speaks for itself. I mean, the, the two lows I have right now are running on probably close to 30, 40 years old now, and they're still killing it. I mean, they're just built really, really well. They've been around forever. Um, so, yeah, I just tend to go back to the tried and true, the ones that have been historically tested. Yeah, you don't see them around as much. I mean, you see a lot of like right. Osprey and Gregory and du- Deuter backpacks, but you don't see the sure. low brand a lot. But I, yeah, I, I yeah. like your pack shop. I like it because I can instantly recognize you. Because <laughs> it's as big as me. Yeah. <laughs> yes. He's like, is that two people walking? Yeah. So Andy, if you hike with Stomp, if you mm-hmm. need a kitchen sink, he'll have he'll have you covered. That's perfect. <laughs> I, I was looking uh, at a, I think I was looking at a ninety the other day at IME uh, in the in the basement. I'm like, oh, that that looks kind of nice. And I caught some flack from, uh, about that from from my girlfriend. I was like, what do you need a ninety for? But I do. I like to. I don't go light in any sense of the word. I'm like a pack mule out there, bigger guy. So um, I, I carry a lot, and I, I move at a slow but steady pace. Well, you just have to tell her, like, look, I'm carrying everything for you as well, so you don't need. To carry anything. And it's <laughs> she, an she, carries, <laughs> she can pack, but uh, yeah. I think because of my frame size, I can just really. I'm well suited to just be weighted down and have it not affect my my. Uh, stamina that much yeah and stomp do you because uh, i know like there's two, two two trains of thought around like the backpack like there's a lot of people that will say go to a store to get it fitted and, and it definitely makes sense especially if you're not comfortable doing the adjustments yourself but i've never really done mm-hmm. that i've just kind of bought the pack and then fiddled with it until it worked out yeah. for me are you gonna do the same Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sh- sure this is 100% adjustable, and we all know how it works for the most part. You know, have it riding on your hips as opposed to your shoulders, and yeah, we'll tweak it and make it work. All right, well, listeners, if you're confident, then you can, you know, I have a feeling it's more that your stomp has no life, and he has like the eight hours to fiddle with the pack, but if you don't have that free time, <laughs> you can just go to any store, and they'll help you fit your pack, but stomp's an expert, apparently. <laughs> oh boy alright Stomp so you you want to do this story so Stomp pulled the social media story about um, the Grand Canyon National Park Instagram um, page posted a picture of the Grand Canyon and then like a it's like a Barbie doll um, right <laughs> and it says like I don't know why oh, like there's no, no good can come of this so no kidding um, ageless and fabulous just like the Grand Canyon Today, for Wanderlust Wednesday, Barbie trades her dream house for the breathtaking landscape of the Grand Canyon. And then it's like just Barbie doing one of those those mid-air jumps that people do on social media. I think it looks fine. I think she looks good in the Grand Canyon. Well, yeah. You got to read the comments, man. They savage <laughs> this post. Yeah. I mean, people don't want to see Barbie. They want to see the, the mountains behind her, and they're all faded out. But uh, yeah, it just begs the question, like these national park federal agencies, do they really need to use 
pop culture or political hot button issues to promote these things. It, it always ends up in disaster. It's so funny. <laughs> I love it. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> I, I, I hope that whoever posted this that's running the National Park Service Instagram is just laughing yeah. at all these people. Well, that, was, it up, but that was one of the comments. That one of the comments was like, I can't believe somebody got paid to post this. <laughs> I don't know. Not, I think people should just have fun. Like, let people have fun. Barbie is fun. So. <laughs> uh, I feel like a lot of the social media directors of, of entities like national parks and, yeah. and others, they just seem like they're, they're towing that fine line between promoting and almost trolling the audience. And mm-hmm. it, it makes for some pretty good content. Yeah. Yeah. This one got a lot of reaction. It has like, you know, a bunch of comments and likes and stuff. So it's like, it's great. You know, next time I go to the grand Canyon stomp, I'm going to bring my Barbie dolls, post some pictures. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm pretty disturbed. You have Barbie dolls, but, uh, you learned something new. We'll save that for another episode. Um, yeah. All right. So, Stump, have you ever heard of anybody uh, getting stuck on a gondola? Uh, I mean, I've heard people get stuck on like ski lifts, but not a, not really a gondola. Um, no, not really. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I can't recall any stories. So there was a story this week. This is in Heavenly... Um, where is this? Uh, Heavenly Mountain Resort. I'm not exactly sure. It's on the West Coast somewhere. Uh, apparently, there was a lady that was skiing. She, for whatever reason, oh, she was a snowboarder. And for whatever reason, she was on the top of the mountain right before closing time. And she had said she wasn't feeling good. She didn't want to snowboard down the mountain doesn't really say the details and what happened, but somehow a worker had allowed her to get on the gondola to go down to the bottom so that she didn't have to ski. But it was right at the um, like five o'clock uh, closing time. So apparently she went down in the gondola, like not that far, like only like about two minutes. And these West Coast, these West, you know, West Coast resorts are bigger and they stopped the gondola. And she started <laughs> oh, screaming. Man. She's like, I'm still on the gondola. And nobody came. So she she got stuck at 5 o'clock. And the gondolas, I don't think, started running until like 8 o'clock the next morning. So she was in there for 15 hours in the freezing cold weather. Holy moly. Which is crazy. Yeah, that's tough. That's a long, long time to be up there. I mean, it's not 100% exposed, but still. It's like, mm. Yeah, yeah, you're out of the wind. Wow. Um, the chief chief operating officer um, had said that there was a breakdown in protocols and that they were doing an investigation to figure out uh, what happened. But um, yeah, that's a little bit scary. I would I would assume that they would cycle through at least one time and have somebody like checking to make sure that no one's in there. But true. Yep, that's a lawsuit waiting to happen. Do you guys sweep the trains every night to make sure no one no one sneaks on? Uh, in a way, yeah. One of my duties at the end of the the night during the the busy season when the trains are outside is to check them all, mostly to make sure they've been put to bed properly by the crew, but also to see if anyone's hanging around or, or you know snooping around anything and or going in the coaches at night. Uh, haven't had anything like that. We've had a person try to spend the night in the the station before, yeah, and you know had to take care of that, but. Uh, yeah, I do check check the trains nightly. This time of year, it's great because they park in the shop um, every night, so they're sort of secured in there. But when they're outside, I have to give them a, a once-over before I take off. 
Yeah, yeah, that's pretty standard. I, years ago, I worked at like a car rental place, and we had like protocols around like checking all the buses before we like put them to bed. So, um, yeah. So anyway, all's well that ends well. She was a little traumatized, but she's she's good to go. We all know that hiking a mountain can be hard at times. So here's a corny dad joke to help you get over it. But um bum. All right, Stomp. So this is the part of the show where we do a dad joke. Uh, normally, yeah. I would be using my book that I got from my friends Lance and Camilla, but um, we're going to switch it up and we're going to allow you to do the dad joke. Oh, yeah. This is just a, uh, a tribute to my, my uncle James. He passed away two weeks ago due to a heart attack. It was like complete shock. And uh, he was the self-proclaimed uh, funniest man alive. <laughs> he was always uh, just joyful and just full of laughter. And uh, at the wake, he actually um, had sent a dad joke to um, one of his granddaughters, uh, just before he passed so he left behind this one final dad joke from uncle james so oh so when so when you found that out you're like oh I, immediately i have to do the dad joke on the show oh hell yeah. yeah this this is like the perfect sending off for uncle james uh so here it is um why did the cell phone go to the dentist mm-hmm. i give up because hmm. it had a blue tooth <laughs> All right. Well, Uncle James, we should have had him on the show before he passed. He would have been perfect. <laughs> I know. No kidding. Yeah. So there it is. Yeah. A little dedication to my uh, my late uncle. So. All right. Well, thoughts thoughts, and uh, prayers with your family. I hope that uh, they're, yeah. they're doing well, Stomp. Sounds like a great, great Appreciate guy. It. Oh, he was. He was tremendous. Miss him dearly. And now, a word from our sponsor. Fieldstone Kombucha. New England's premium craft kombucha company. If you're in the heart of New England, you need to drink a New England-style kombucha. Softer, less acidic, and truly enjoyable. Our kombucha is naturally effervescent and boasts full-bodied flavor. Fieldstone crafts the best seasonal flavors. When we tell you there's blueberries in our baby bandit flavor... It nearly turns your tongue blue. Women owned and operated. We brew in Rhode Island using whole locally sourced ingredients. Fieldstone Kombucha is the perfect replenishing drink after a day on the slopes or a trek in the woods. It's chock full of probiotics and healthy acids to keep you in top form. Find us at Biederman's in Plymouth, Mad River Coffee House in Campton, the Concord Food Co-op, and more. Check out our website for the full list of New Hampshire and New England-wide locations. Use code SLASHER, S-L-A-S-R, on our website for 10% off an online order, which is shipped straight to your door. FieldstoneKombuchaCo.com Hey, what's that sound? It must be time for the pop culture segment with Mike and Stomp.
All right, so now this is the part of the show where we talk a little bit of pop culture. We've got uh, a film recommendation from our friend Stosh, who um, yeah. he's been on the show. He hosts the Catskills um, podcast, so we'll put a link to his show. So he recommends mm-hmm. uh, a, a movie called Safe and Found, which covers um, Search and Rescue. That's right. So they use three stories um, to uh, highlight Search and Rescue, and it was a documentary that premiered uh, with a free screening last weekend at Haywood Community College, and the film's preventative Search and Rescue message is taught through uh, these three stories, and they're first-hand accounts of trials and tribulations in the wilderness. And uh, I'm quoting here, the real-life scenarios center on the top three situations hikers find themselves in. Bad preparation, bad choices, and bad luck. So, check it out. It's uh, pretty decent, and uh, thank you, Stosh, for the, the tip. I haven't um, I haven't watched this yet. Is there a particular like location where it's focused on? I haven't watched it either. Okay. I'm just passing on the info. Okay. Well, it's, it's, uh, I believe it's a lengthier documentary, too, so... All right, well, I'll check it it's out. It's not like a quick YouTube video. Good. I'll check it out tonight. And then uh, we don't have anything else for pop culture stop. I will tell you, I've gotten yeah. back into video games. Really? Yeah, my wife's not happy, but I got um, Hogwarts <laughs> Legacy, the like Harry Potter thing, and she's just like, what, what's going on down here? <laughs> I'm in my man That's cave. hilarious. Yeah. Where'd Mike go? <laughs> it's so confusing. There's like so many buttons. I'm like, I just want to play Super Mario Brothers, but I've been like spending about 45 minutes because I'm like, all I'm doing is just screwing around on my phone otherwise so I was like I might as well just do video games so I spent about 45 minutes every night going through like they have these quests and you have to like learn to cast these spells and you run around the castle and stuff so it's like I, my wife thinks yeah. it's a mid midlife crisis so <laughs> games are fun it is uh, Mrs. Stomp and I play um, Beach Buggy on our old Playstation and uh, I still have my Steam account Steam's fantastic great stuff out there but it's a matter of finding the time. It's like, oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how you would, like, sit down and do this for, like, five, six hours like some of these young folks do. But, um, oh, yeah, my okay. wife's not approving, so I just said, you need to let me have some fun, Mrs. Mike. Yeah. That's cool. Yep. And the other thing about these games these days, I used to be into it, too, but now it's so stressful. I get so amped up. I'm like, I can't play this game. This, I'm just going to get freaked out. Like at, at yeah. that time of my life where I'm trying to minimize my stress. Yeah, I am <laughs> noticing it's starting to get a little stressful, so I may I may toss the thing and just switch over to something easier. But anyway, anybody who yeah. plays Hogwarts Legacy and they want to send me a tip, that'd be great. <laughs> That's funny. All right. All right, so get uh, the old plugs coming. We have stickers available at Ski Fanatics uh, off of Exit 28 in Campton, New Hampshire, or at Spinner's. Pizza Pala in Andover, just off Dascom Road in Massachusetts. If anybody's interested, we do offer uh, advertising opportunities for the podcast if you want to get your uh, your thing plugged on the show. And uh, we have our first sponsor here, Vaucluse Gear. Does your backpack not provide enough ventilation? Does your back sweat too much when backpacking? As you know, sweat can be extremely uncomfortable on the trails. Plus, sweat is a serious risk factor in both hot and cold climates. As your clothes get wet, your core temperature can dramatically fluctuate. This can result in hypothermia, heat exhaustion, and dehydration. Let's not forget, very uncomfortable. Today's your lucky day because we have good news for you. There's a piece of gear that solves the sweat and ventilation problem, making your backpack more comfortable. Vaucluse's 
ultralight backpack ventilation frame. This ultralight frame is a backpack accessory that easily installs in your favorite pack, size 15 liters to 45. I guess I'm out of the mix with my new 65 coming. And creates a ventilating airflow gap between you and your pack. It's also ultralight, weighing around 3 ounces. That's equivalent to a pair of wool socks. Whether hiking in hot or cold temps, the ultralight backpack ventilation frame from Vaucluse Gear is a real game changer regarding airflow and ventilation. Visit vaucluseGear.com to order an ultralight ventilation frame today and use promo code SLASHER, S-L-A-S-R, to enjoy a $5 discount and let them know that Mike and Stomp sent you. Very good. I like my Valkyrie, yeah. so recommend. Yeah, it. me too. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's a, mine. Mine is attached to my ultralight for jogging and stuff like that. Excellent stuff. Hey, hold my beer! It's time to find out what Mike and Stomp are drinking on this week's beer talk. So this is the part of the show where we talk about what beer we're drinking. I don't know, Andy, you you, you uh, relaxing? You're not driving a train tonight, so are you, do you have anything you want to share? <laughs> so I'm uh, very much a square, and I don't drink, but I do have a, uh, a main route going right now, which is oh. about as close as oh, I get nice. to drinking. <laughs> yeah, no. so, um, you would be surprised. Like, I would us, say huh? like more than half our guests are not drinkers, so wow. that's pretty common, you know? Yeah. I thought I was in the... A small minority. <laughs> no, a lot of people like they don't drink. Matter of fact, I, I spent like yeah. a long time like went away from it, but now I'm just my wife yelling at me over video games, so I need I need a beer to come down. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, yeah, but I'm drinking. Yeah. Uh, it's it's called a little oh, ring God. by Small Change Brewing. <laughs> I don't know where they're located, Stomp. Huh? Small Change. Yeah, it's an American Peel Ale, so it's not bad. It's a little little smoother nice. than what I've been drinking lately. Well, Mrs. Stomp grabbed me a classic, sorry guys, nothing new tonight, but it's a Pulp Daddy from uh, Greater Good, Imperial Brewing Company, 8%, Imperial IPA, it's a hazy, so yeah, nothing new on the IPA front tonight, but uh, thank you, Mrs. Stomp, much appreciated. Thank you for not yelling at Stomp, appreciate it. Exactly, yeah. I knew we should have gone left back there. Stomp, don't worry. I know it's this way. I've got a feeling in my gut. Uh, are you sure you're not about to have a bowel emergency? <laughs> uh, totally. We got this. But I just blew out my hip. Fell down that gully with my 40-year-old microspikes. Suck it up, Stomp. It's 4 p.m. We're at 3,500 feet. We got nine miles back to the parking lot. Your leg may be broken. We got no cell connection, and we can't feel our fingers. But we're finishing all of my list tonight. <sighs> By the way, I need some water. I'm empty. I would if I could see what I'm doing, but my headlamp batteries are dead. You gotta be kidding me. What a chump. This is the last time I hike with you. Ha, whatever, mister. Do you know me? I have a podcast. Whatever. Let's find out what Mike and Stomp have been hiking. Um, 
All right, Stomp, this is the part of the show where we talk about recent hikes. So you haven't gone out and done anything, but you had an adventure on your snowmobile this weekend. Do you want to talk about it? Oh, yeah. I uh, I was having a, a strong run without any incidents, and then I took out a tour of six sleds. Three of them had uh, young children on the back of the sleds, and then there was a couple on one sled, and then two others and whatever. I, th- I think that, ath- that, that math adds up. But uh, we were at... at Little Deception Pond on Cherry Mountain Road. We were at a stop, and we were just taking pictures. And when it was time to go, I left, and a couple sleds left behind me. And then, sure enough, about a quarter mile down the road, a snowmobile behind us zipped up to us fast and got my attention. And um, I came back, and literally from the start of where this one person on my tour started to 10 feet after... He had crashed into a tree and he went from, he complete, I guess people behind him saw what happened. He caught a rut literally at the start when he started to move, freaked out, whiskey throttled it, as they say, and just hit a tree at maximum velocity and uh, broke his leg, uh, broke his tibia. I, I was assuming, I mean, holy moly, it was pretty wild, Mike. Um, I mean, I've had crashes and things. I've had broken noses. I've had dislocated wrists. But this was a whole other level. Um, and I'm still tr- trying to process like my decisions and things like that. We don't have to get super deep into it. But ultimately, uh, you can imagine, there's two or three sleds a quarter mile up ahead. There are people behind. Uh, the kids were ahead. So you're trying to manage all these people that are somewhat dislocated from each other yeah. you've got somebody on the ground the spouse was fine uh there was no cell service so yeah it was wild but ultimately we got him out um it was about four miles and i made the call to get him on the back of my sled as opposed to calling nine one one, which would have taken you know a couple hours i don't know yeah. but they were just they were little kids i mean we just couldn't really do that and he was alert and oriented he you know you couldn't really 100 percent screen him for head injury or spinal but he was moving his head moving his arms and yeah man heavy duty um go ahead you got a question well so then did you have to go over jefferson notch road to get back no so cherry mountain road um which is on the eastern side of mount martha and owl's head Mm -hmm. uh, is a low elevation it's probably maybe six miles in length total so from where we were it was maybe three to four miles to get back to route 302 and then from there um he just jumped into um his spouse's car and they drove off to um i think i don't know one of the local hospitals i don't want to reveal that but you guys just get the sled at some later point Dude, yeah, it was absolutely total. So we had to drag it out, and um, yeah, it was a mess. But uh, one, one thing, I, I approached guiding up until this weekend with sort of a, a hiker's mentality, and I would pack as if I was ready or prepared to, say, make a splint out of like ace wrap or make a tourniquet out of fabric and a stick and whatever else but after this weekend i decided to harden all those things so i I purchased legit like rhino tourniquets uh real slings and all that stuff um because it's just a matter of time before something like that happens where somebody needs like legit care as opposed to 
Yeah, you're going to get like, you're not going to get the lower leg injuries necessarily like you do in hiking. You're going to get like, you know, concussions and shoulders and arms and, you know, you'll get some of those like injuries where people are pinned against a tree. So it's... Oh, yeah. Or a tree is, is, has ruptured somebody's uh, femoral artery. I mean, it's, it's not a joke. So it was sort of, I guess it was a sort of a, a, I don't want to say it's a wake up call. I knew that that was a possibility, but I um, was compelled to really up my gear just um, to make it easier on me should that happen. Um, I don't think it's the place for the hiker approach to some of these potential injuries, that's for sure. Yeah. So anyway, do you guys all's well um, that ends well. Do you test out the users to say like, okay, go drive up and down the road so we can see if you're, you know, I guess you probably... <laughs> we do that together as a group and you know how people are... Before we even go, I, I interview them and screen them like, have you ridden? Well, I'm going to place you here. I'm going to place you there. Um, and within the first five minutes, you know if somebody is, you know, fairly adept at it or not. And uh, you can change things up as you go. And But honestly, it was the end of the tour. We had been out for two hours already, and this one individual was a great rider. He was fine. He just... You know, he's just, I don't know, he, it, the reflexes took over, yeah. and he just flew off the trail, hit a tree. Are those uh, the throttles, are they the thumb throttles? It's been a year since I've driven those things. Yeah, oh yeah, yep, absolutely. And you're supposed to only use your thumb, because if you're manhandling it with your entire hand, you're, you're going to get in trouble for sure, especially when you're taking a left turn. You know, it's on the right, so you're taking a left turn, and inevitably people get into trouble, and they panic, and they press the whole thing and end up in the river or wherever. So, yeah. All right, well, nice job, so. Stomple. I had a much better day than you did on Saturday, I'll tell you that. <laughs> so, um, ah, yeah. And tell us about yeah. it. I saw some pics. Yes, I did. I hiked Madison and Adams. And Andy, have you been up? You've been you've been up um, above the clouds this week. Have you? Yeah. This is uh, yeah. this week's been unbelievable, right? Oh, just, just a crazy string of uh, days with an undercast. It's just one of the longest uh, chains of days I can remember where it's been like that. Yeah, yeah. I just saw some pictures of somebody that was out. I think today or yesterday. It's just it's been like uh, unbelievable. So yeah, I went out with. We had a group of, originally me and my friend Steve were going to hike the Wildcats, and then uh, we heard back from Nick, our friend Nick, and he had said like he was going to hike Madison and Adams with um, with a friend, so I just offered to Steve. Steve immediately was like, yeah, let's bail on Wildcats and just go to the, the Prezi, so we didn't know. We were kind of like, yeah, maybe we'll get some views, we'll get some peaks, but we didn't we didn't expect like what, what we ran into so once we it was pretty uneventful to get up valley way a lot of people in the parking lot i saw like probably saw like five people i knew there was like a couple of different groups but there was uh, like littlefoot and her, her grandparents were um heading up the valley way so we saw uh, you know er, wherever we went we kept seeing people we knew so that was that was fun but it also wasn't super crowded it was just like different groups but we got to madison springs and the the clouds were just burning off, and when we got to the oh, hut, so great. and I looked around, I was like, "It's happening." I'm like, "There's going to be like a good, you know, good views here." But I didn't realize how insane the undercast was because you can't really tell when you're at that hut. But um, we mm-hmm. got up like halfway up Madison, and I looked behind me, and there was a, a white rainbow. Wow which I'd never seen before. That's cool. So I got some shots of the they call it a fog bow or a white rainbow. Mm-hmm. And then Mount Washington looked like 
just a little island in the surrounded by the the clouds and luckily one of the guys we hike with nick is a photographer so he had like his nice camera so he got a bunch of really cool shots epic yeah so <laughs> um and madison was amazing and then we got back down to the hut little foot was coming up so she was her and her crew were, were um heading up to madison and then we decided to go up star lake which wasn't broken out so we got a little bit over by star lake and then we were mostly just staying on top of the crust but we started sinking in so we put snowshoes on and then made our way across the lower snow field on star lake and that trail i don't know stop if you've been on there in the winter but it's it's nice but it's it's like you're going up but you're going at an angle so you're kind of like falling down the whole time so it's a little exposed so it's not the most comfortable trail yeah, that's a challenging trail. How'd you do at the top there where you got to do those scrambles? Um, so Steve was leading. I was sweeping. And Steve was like going over to the left to try to find an approach because the only way up that I was looking at was like a chimney that didn't look safe at all. But I ended up just going up it. And then Steve and Nick and Mike went around. And they I think they found the easier spot. Yeah. So, but it was good. It was okay. good. It was a little chilly when we got on Adams. Then we went back down airline, saw a bunch of yeah. people coming up. But like the views were just insane. Yeah, incredible pictures. So that brings you to what on your winter forty eight list? Well, I'd already done all those, so I'm at forty three. So I've got five more to go. Oh, okay. All right. So all right. Yeah, I'm not too worried about it. I'll get it either later in February or in March. I'll finish up. Oh, should we tell the listeners the news about the uh, the dinner, AMC dinner? Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, super cool. We were uh, um, we're invited to have a uh, table at the AMC Awards this uh, spring, so we'll be kicking around. And uh, here's the funny thing about this: I gotta get your both you guys your opinion on this. I uh, I got the email and uh, immediately I'm like, oh yeah, let me check with Mike and see what happens. And uh, talking with Mike and. Mike's like, yeah, that's great. And then all of a sudden I realize it's my <laughs> wedding anniversary. <laughs> so I uh, I asked Mrs. Stomp if uh, it, it's... I, I, I presented it like, well, I can't really do this. It's our anniversary. And then she wrote back and said, oh, I don't mind. <laughs> what anniversary will it be? Yeah, wedding anniversary. A year. Yeah. Oh, like how many years? Oh, my goodness. You had to ask 11? <laughs> yeah, 11. Yeah. You can skip yeah, it. So I would say if it was the tenth, maybe <laughs> yes. not, not a good, good move, but eleventh. Yeah, it's not a milestone. Yeah, and you okay. presented it really well. You gave her the the first right of refusal, so I think that was uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. There you go. And I meant that right. I was like, well, I, you know, Mike's got it covered. He doesn't need me. Well, I also think like if <laughs> he's it's, the popular one anyway. Oh, please, I, I wonder <laughs> though is it um is the is the dinner on a weekday or is it a weeknight or weekend? That would be a Saturday night, I think. Okay. If I remember correctly, it's um, I can pull it up if you want. Uh, it's in April, so it's April twentieth, uh, Saturday, April twentieth. Okay. Yeah. So pencil it in, people. It's time for Slasher's Notable Hike of the Week. If you want to be considered for the Hike of the Week, simply tag Slasher on your social media post. 
Um, all right, Stomp. So this is the part of the show where we do the notable listener hikes, and then Andy, you're going to be up soon. All right. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So if you want to uh, tag Slasher on your adventure to be considered for Slasher's Hike of the Week, uh, do so, and hopefully we will uh, get to you. Some some weeks we're floored and we just don't have enough time to put them all in, but this week we, we have four. So Littlefoot, you just mentioned, uh, finished her third round of New Hampshire 48 on Madison and Adams. Pretty amazing. I didn't know that was her third round. Yeah. Holy moly, what a machine. Um, Rob MCC85 did North and South Kinsman, and that was 11 and 12 out of the Winter 48. Nice work. And then veterans on the 48 tagged us. They had a trip out to, and I, I got to hand it to them, this is not an easy trip. They did Mount Willie um, from the Willie side, from uh, lower down, not from Tom and Field. So they did out and back. They did all the ladders, yeah, and that's a hell pictures. of a trail. Yeah. yeah, I like that a lot. Hell of a trail. So that's intense. And then our uh, man Dave shits in the woods did Mount Wolf, and this was ninety nine out of the hundred and four New Hampshire highest hundred. And um, I read the review, and that's pretty intense. He. Um, it's funny. I go to um, I go to work up over Lost River, and I always look at that trail um, to see if it's broken out. And uh, that's the Kinsman Ridge Trail. Yeah. So if you start at Lost River, uh, Beaver Brook Pond, you can go several miles in to get to Mount Wolf. And sure enough, I saw somebody broke it out on the way back from work uh, later one day and I'm, I'm assuming it was him but uh, that's a hell of a trip yeah nobody that's, goes uh, out there he broke trail yeah yeah nobody yeah. so I don't know Mike uh, immediately you know, no little... he doesn't get it um, <laughs> veterans on the 48 gets it from Mount Willie so <laughs> so Andy I'm, I'm, I'm not being mean but we know Dave and um, we, we are now never going to give him the award because um, we think it's funny I don't know yeah I'm on the fence but uh, I guess you're right Mike yeah Nope. Stay strong. Stop. Okay. <laughs> will pro- do. He'll probably keep putting in for it, though. He will. He will. <laughs> he, he's got to keep going. Uh, that might be the one way he win if he stops sending him in, but uh, we won't tell him that. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's time for Slasher's Guest of the Week. Very cool. Very cool. All right, Andy. So this is your segment. So thanks for joining us again. So um, again, for the listeners. So Andy is the train master of the Mount Washington Cog Railway. So what is that? So what does that entail? I'm assuming you're in charge of all the operations of the, the train and track system for the railway. Yeah, it's it's like an operations manager. So uh, I have oversight of the train crews, the train movements, uh, safety, rule adherence, scheduling, and then got to work in between departments with the shop to coordinate, make sure we have enough trains available, substitutions. So it's like a day-to-day operations manager. I work pretty close with the general manager to make sure things are running smoothly and to interface between departments to get that done, which there's quite a bit to do in all times of the year. Uh, busy season, we, we see 
close to 2,000 people a day on a busy day. And then this time of year, we're not seeing ridership like that, but there's a lot of other things to contend with uh, weather-wise that uh, keep us busy for sure. Oh, and then can you talk a little bit about your early life? Are you a New Hampshire resident or what, what, were you like always a sort of an outdoor uh, person? I, I hate to admit it, but I, I'm actually a transplanted mass hole. And, okay. Uh, All right. I'll, I'll with you. <laughs> right. I, Me too. I grew up uh, in Massachusetts, but coming up here, my, my dad was instrumental in, in uh, kind of fostering my love for the outdoors because our summer vacations were frequently coming up to the White Mountains, camping, and uh, exploring the, the wild spaces up here. So I kind of got that bug early. And I think through repeated visits to this area, I had this idea in the back of my mind that I always wanted to relocate and, and live there one day. But I didn't know if I could really make it happen, didn't know if the time was right. So didn't wind up actually putting that through and, and actualizing that until – uh, 2015, when I actually kind of reset my whole life to come work at the COG, and that was going to be the catalyst for me uh, moving up to the White Mountains was going to be actually to apply and, and uh, get my foot in the door working as a, a brakeman uh, at the COG Railway, and came from a pretty different background. I was working uh, as the head of security of a couple different music venues in the Boston area. And I, I was one of those train kids. I grew up with a, a train affinity from a young age. Okay. Uh, just being uh, me too. by them. So I think the marrying of trains with the White Mountains and, and kind of putting that all together just really appealed to me. So when I finally pulled that trigger and made the move, I've I've been so happy to, to, to actually be able to kind of live the dream and, and have this uh, beautiful natural playground in my backyard. Wow. So you so you moved up a little less than ten years ago. Start. You just basically got your foot in the door and worked your way up. Yeah, I, I started. Just our our brakemen are kind of a combination between uh, a safety person on the coach and a conductor. They will interface with the guests, and they're also a, a tour guide element as well. Where there'll be a narrative that that goes on on the trip, and that's what I started doing. And I always wanted to learn a little more as I went, pick up what I could and learn from the guys that have been there. And I just kind of started uh, integrating different job duties and titles and eventually wound up working into the role that I have today. Wow. And then um, it sounds like you do a fair amount of hiking as well in the area. Yeah. I I like to, that's number one thing I like to do when I have off time. Um, I I like getting out solo. My girlfriend and I get out, do a lot. she works for the state at the summit, so we actually met uh, through the railway, which is kind of a, a, a nice, cheesy Mount Washington love story. Okay. And uh, she's into hiking as well, so um, we like to get out together. And, and uh, I'm a big fan of trails like the Terrifying 25. That's one I'm working on right now, that list, to try to hit all of those. Um, no, well, and, let, me, let me ask you about the Terrifying 25, because you're in a unique yeah. situation. So the rules on the Terrifying 25, like you could, in theory take the cog up and then hike down Sphinx. Do you do that or do you choose to start from the lower trailheads for all of them? I haven't done that yet. I, I like to, to sort of start natural. You know, I did um, most, uh, probably my favorite one that I've done where I got close to the train was when I did uh, Great Gulf. Oh, yeah. And I come up and, you know, of course, you see the train passing uh, the Gulf Side Trail there and I'm thinking, well, I could 
you know, I'm done with the trail now. I could jump on the train and ride to the summit, yeah. but because I've done the portion of the trail, I need, I've done Mount Washington enough times now that I don't need that to count for anything. So I thought about it and I said, no, I'm going to complete the hike and use my own two legs to get me there. Um, yeah. The one thing I did when I did a bushwhack of Bird's Ravine, I used the train to uh, to get me up. And then I actually wound up not super proud of this now looking back on it because I wound up bushwhacking the Alpine Zone in, in shoulder season-ish conditions. Yeah. Um, it wasn't adequate snow coverage, but I bushwhacked down into Bird's Ravine and then out through Clay Brook and back to the Cog. And that I did take the train up to, to get the uh, approach to that. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, I like to get myself in and out. Yeah, what's it like inside uh, Burt Ravine? I'm kind of I'm always curious oh. about that. Is it, do you do you think a lot of people travel in there, or is it pretty? It must be pretty sparse. I'm thinking it's it's one of the sparsest. I mean, it, it's a bushwhack that's um, pretty gnarly because of the avalanche that happened through there a uh, mm-hmm. little years ago. I think it was, and the trees are just strewn in such a way that it's a, a tightly woven sort of under canopy that you have to work over, under, around, and through. Uh, really wild down there. Lots of waterfalls, lots of um, yep. rugged terrain. Uh, destroyed a pair of boots on that bushwhack that just, they were reasonable going into it and they were totally trashed coming out. And it was an interesting perspective being down there at the very bottom of the ravine and seeing, um, it was in 2017 I did it. So there was a new washout scar that had formed from uh, the big October uh, Halloween flooding rainstorm in 2017 that we had there. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a, a new slide that people even ski now. It sort of comes from up around the, uh, just below the Jacob's Ladder halfway house area of the cog and goes down into Burt's. Okay. It's a pretty narrow but uh, skiable scar that I guess people do. But yeah, I didn't see a soul down there. Uh, just saw a couple of ski poles because um, people will ski it. But it was uh, gorgeous to be down in there and have kind of that unique perspective of being in a ravine that, that no one really travels through. Yeah, Stomp, you should put that on your list. And for the listeners, if you're not sure what we're talking about, so Burt Ravine is essentially, it's the ravine that um, is between the Cog and the Jewel Trail. So um, there is a couple of sections, like if you're hiking down the Cog, like there is a so one no-slip zone where you don't want to go, you don't want to slip because you will fall into that ravine but in general it's a pretty thick um area but it sounds like there's some slides that have have openings so that's that's pretty interesting that you've uh, you've gone in there i mean it makes sense like it's an that's area awesome. that you're around a lot so mm-hmm. great so um as you so as you've worked your way up into the, this train master position can you i mean I, i've done a couple of segments about the early history of the Mount Washington Cog Railway. Um, can you talk a little bit about your know, sort of your knowledge of the the early history? So I can I can tell the listeners. So the construction began in 1866. It was completed. There was a significant completion up to Jacob's Ladder in 1868, and then full completion in 1869 up to the summit. The person that was the driving force behind the Cog Railway is um, Sylvester Marsh, who was quite a character. That's I think he was a Massachusetts native that went between Chicago and New Hampshire, and um, you know he's got an interesting story. But how, how much of a historian are you of the Cog? Uh, I like to dive dive pretty deep into it. So I, I love history. I love uh, 
uh, railroad history in particular. And the cog has a, such an interesting story because of Marsh and, and like you said, quite a character, uh, one that was uh, very highly doubted when he came up with this whole idea for the railway. He actually was a, a New Hampshire native. He was born in Campton in okay. 1803, and he wound up uh, moving to Boston after a while. When he was 19, he moved to Boston. Uh, he had a farming upbringing, and he wound up uh, accumulating a fair amount of wealth in his life through inventions and uh, patents that he had issued for things like a grain dryer, and he worked in the meat packing uh, provisions industry as well. Uh, that led him out to Chicago. I think he made the bulk of his money out there uh, in the Chicago area. Yeah, I think he was like one of the one of the early founders. I think he was in Chicago when there was only like maybe a couple hundred people living out there, right? Yeah, he was. You know, in the in the infancy of that, you know, sort of booming into to become the, the city that it would be. He he was a you know well known and, and respected kind of business mogul out there in its early days. You know kind of started as a big fish in, a, in what was a small pond and then quickly exploded. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the other thing that I've read about him is that he invented some form of the coffee percolator. Uh, I've, yeah, I've read. I did see something about that. He, he had quite a few inventions that were sort of totally unrelated to the railway, and that's what a lot of people don't realize. They, they hear about the Marsh story and they hear about the cog and they assume, here's a railroad man or here's a you know, a person that was, an, you know, a railway executive or, or something like that. And he really had nothing to do with uh, rail or rail travel prior to this whole uh, cog development. And he had his inventions were in, in other uh, arenas. Yeah, yeah. I think he was like a cattle baron or something out there. But he, I guess the, and you were telling us before we recorded the show that we had our dates a little bit off, but he, the, the, the the motivation behind the railway was he had done a hike up Mount Washington in 1857, mm-hmm. and um, he had gotten, I think, lost a little bit, but did make his way up to the summit, right? He did, yeah. The hike was in August of 1857, and he wasn't alone. He was with uh, his pastor from the Boston area, Augustus Thompson, and they ascended, uh, I believe, via the Crawford Path, but I, I I could be wrong on that. Uh, there's sketchy information about his route that he took, but he was going up and the conditions deteriorated rapidly as they often do and uh, found freezing rain, high winds, poor visibility. And at one point they were really questioning whether or not they were going to be able to make it. And rather than heed all uh, intelligent decision-making and turn back, they were, already above tree line at this point, so they figured pressing on would be best as he knew he could seek some form of shelter should they reach the summit with the uh, tip-top house being there, but narrowly made it with their lives. You know, he nearly became another early statistic on the mountain in terms of the uh, extensive uh, fatality list there. Wow, and that, do you think that, well, we don't don't know for certain, but do you think that that motivated him to... Uh, start his sort of obsession with the with the mountain and the idea around building the the cog railway yeah there was a, a quote that's attributed to him when they did finally get there and got to safety and, and spent that uh night at the tip top post that there's got to be some easier and safety method of ascension of, of the mountain and he kind of being a businessman he saw the potential in uh sort of having a tourist attraction that could reach uh safely the highest peak in New England, and there was sort of that burgeoning 
tourism economy in the White Mountains, even at that time, with folks coming up from the cities looking for an escape from the what was becoming a more cramped and industrial uh, way of life. So he wanted to get it. Yeah, yeah. And there was a lot of grand hotels that were popping up and a lot of tourism. So he had gone to the state about a year later and had gotten uh, skeptical approval, I think, from the state legislature around like, mm-hmm. okay, you can get the permit to... Um, to build this, so I'm assuming this some way he was able to convince the state to give him the access to that land and purchase the, I guess the easement to to build the Cog Railway. But I think there was a lot of skepticism about whether he could actually make it happen. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. The, the whole uh, remark that was made was that Marsh may as well build a railway to the moon. So sometimes the the sort of half joking uh, moniker that we bear is the railway to the moon, uh, hearkening back to that. Uh, they called him Crazy Marsh in, in the local newspapers of the time and locals just discussing the notion. I'd never been attempted anywhere in the world, uh, a mountain climbing railway, so the, the whole idea was kind of foreign and kind of crazy to most that would hear about it. And I guess that the granting of the charter that the state uh, did was on the grounds of uh, the phrase was, what harm could be done? Either he'll succeed and the benefits are guaranteed. It will be a, a boost to the, the tourism economy, or he'll fail and he'll be out only his own money because he was going to put forth and uh, bankroll his own operation to get it started with uh, five thousand dollars of his own funds, which you know, fair amount of money back then. Yeah, and he did fund it himself. Primarily, he did fund it himself, at least in the beginning. But there was some delays, so he started. I mean, he got the approval in eighteen fifty eight. And um, I don't think that they did they not start construction. I don't think until like five or six years later, right? Yeah, they paused for the Civil War and some other uh, delays. Uh, they're scouting a route and, and securing land and so forth. And then, of course, the Civil War breaking out put things on quite the hold. So nothing really got moving truly until May of eighteen sixty six. Got it. Yeah, and then he pretty rapidly was able to to build out the tracks. The the technology behind a cog railway, can you explain um, exactly what that is? So the co- a cog railway is specifically designed for climbing, but can you explain the, the technology behind that? Sure. So typically on a, on a mainline railway, you have two rails on the outside and the wheels of the train are driven to friction drive essentially off of those rails. On a cog railway, all the drive is through a gear in the center going into a you could think of it as a third rail, but it's really, it's called a rack and it's mounted right down the middle of the tracks. And it's those gears, uh, those two gears or those uh, pinions that are driven that interlock with spools in the rack to propel the train forward and up. And it works great for climbing a grade. It had been used in other applications prior to Marsh's design, uh, primarily in, in mining and things like that. And his was to be the first application of that technology to actually climb a mountain. Uh, there had been funiculars that existed before, which would be like a cable-driven railway that would wind and pull something up. And he did sort of explore the feasibility of that from Mount Washington and discovered that there was too great of a uh, elevation change, uh, too many changing angles. He'd have to have several different cable winds and things like this. And that's when he sort of went to the design of the propelled uh, gear-driven trains. And then the engines are tilted somewhat upward so that when you do do the climb, they're more level to um, to the plane that they're, they're ascending, correct? Correct. Yeah, our average grade is right around 25%. So on our steam locomotives, we match that pitch on the boiler so that 
these that are fire tube boilers and you're ensuring that there's proper water coverage across that tube bundle inside as long as the crew is maintaining the right water level relative to the, the portion of the track they're at. Our diesel uh, locomotives have uh, the use of a John Deere uh, engine that has primarily been used as like a genset application in, in marine um, types of types of applications. So it's well suited to operate on a grade as a real deep uh, oil pickup in the uh, oil pan. And it's a motor that can withstand, you know, changing of pitches and things like this because of its uh, primary application. So it's actually, in a way, it's a reduction way to put it, but it, it is a boat engine essentially in a, in a train uh, locomotive. Wow. And then the, when the, he initially, so he was able to build up to Jacob's ladder in 1868 and then he needed another year to get full completion. How many trains did he have running at a, when he, when he got to the summit to start with? So just one in the very early going, and that was the original locomotive old pepper sass, which mm-hmm. we still have on display at the base as kind of a reminder <laughs> of the history. And it's a very awkward looking locomotive. It has no enclosed cab, a vertical boiler that's mounted on these trunnions, so it could actually swivel as it went up the mountain okay. and self-correct it uh, on the grade. And that was a wood-fired locomotive. And it had a top speed of a whole uh, one and a half miles an hour, so it was a slow plodding uh, journey <laughs> days to actually get up. But it was, it was a wild ride. The earliest cars were completely open. Uh, people were exposed to the elements and, you know, very much a highly seasonal operation in those days. Yeah. What do you think the environment was for the uh, the people working on the tracks to build it? Do you have any sense of, you know, I'm assuming they lived um, close to the station and, you know, probably had to deal with a lot of rough, rough weather. But is there any any sort of his- history that's tracked around that, 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 I guess, the experience that those those construction people went through? Yeah, there's there's a little. There's not a lot of documentation of direct stories, but there's understandings and some some compiled history on it. There was a lot of uh, lodging. The Cogro actually has a long-standing uh, history of lodging at the base for mm-hmm. workers that sort of began with that initial construction crew, and uh, really that lasted until the mid two thousands, where a lot of the workers were actually living uh, on base. But those early workers, I mean. There's a lot of stories out there from that period, uh, sort of contemporary to that would have been the Transcontinental Railroad being completed mm-hmm. in the, uh, the western part of the country. But railroad workers, it was not a, a glorified uh, job. It was hard, dirty, uh, d- often dangerous work. And now you're taking all the dangers and the, the hard, laborious tasks that, uh, tasks that come with any railroad work. And now you're t- saying, okay, now you're going to build a railway on the side of a mountain that bears the world's worst weather and now you have to contend with that on top of all the other uh issues that come with that that form of really uh trying labor yeah but you do have to imagine too like in that period of of american history the amount of real building that was going on even though the environment's difficult and the, the work's hard like the 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 labor population that had expertise in that area was probably pretty pretty good yeah I mean, it was it was much more of a physical workforce then, and there's an understanding that a lot of the initial uh, workers were returning veterans from the northern states of the uh, Civil War. So they were coming back from the war. If they weren't uh, wounded or, or compromised in any way, some of them did be looking for work, and this would be something to get them, you know, sort of guaranteed work that had a, a clear goal and a clear um, vision in mind that 
that someone could uh, sign up for. But there are figures suggesting that there were up to 300 laborers engaged um, at a time. I think that might be a bit inflated, but there was certainly the between clearing the, the way and actually building our track is entirely trestle-based. So it's basically like one big bridge ascending the mountain mm-hmm. and the height off the ground varies depending on the terrain. So different than a traditional railway, they would be set right on the ground. So these guys are not only building a railway, but they're building basically a big trestle all the way up the mountain. Yeah, and I think the... Um you know the the weather conditions and things like that from a preventive preventative maintenance perspective like early on you know just you know the concerns around like oil freezing and and mm-hmm. and fuel and things like that i would imagine they could only run it like you said it's seasonal so i would imagine by yeah. like the fall they would have to just shut it down completely right yeah it was pretty much a june to september operation in those days and that actually persisted for quite a while that our operating season was pretty much May to October or November until just a few years ago when we started exploring partial winter operations. But yeah, in those early days, it was strictly a summer, uh, a summer operation for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk about um, all the activities and stuff. Cause there's a lot, there's a lot that goes on, especially in the winter. Like I've been over, I've been, you know, at the cog a bunch of times, almost every winter I, I do at least one trip um, down the cog on, from a hiking perspective, but just going back to the technology to start with. So you, for, for most of the life of the railway, um, you utilized, um, you know, non-diesel trains, but you have, you have cut over in the last, like, what is it like the last 10 years or so you've, you've transitioned to diesel trains mostly. Yeah, the first uh, viable diesel was built in 2008, and we now have a fleet of seven of those. Uh, we do maintain a couple of steam engines to kind of keep that heritage alive, but you know, 90% of the trips, or if not more, that are going up the mountain are, are diesel-powered now with that larger diesel fleet. Yeah, and I do like, a, like I'll hike in the morning a lot in the area, and you do see the, usually the first train in the morning, um, the steam trains that come up, like it's just sort of like, okay, the, the Mount Washington Valley is like waking up. It's, a, it's it's pretty good. But do you just run that train like one time and then the rest of it's diesel or does that train go up and down all day like the other ones? No, it's it's more of a finite schedule. So it'll go twice a day, um, usually the very first and the very last uh, hours of the operation and during a shorter season as well. So it doesn't get rolled out until the Memorial Day uh, weekend and then it gets put away Columbus Day weekend so it's running a more condensed portion of the season, and that helps us out with uh, freezing temperatures and considerations for the water and so forth that it has to take on. And just the, the twice a day, uh, whereas the diesels are, are going uh, every hour on the hour. And the, um, if, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm trying to remember, like you, you push the, the, the passenger cars up, is that mm-hmm. correct? Yes, that's correct. It's another way that would be pretty different from a traditional railway. So the engine is behind the coach, and the coach is being, in the railway uh, industry, it's called being shoved uh, yeah. ahead. And the reason for that is twofold. Number one, if you had the engine pulling that, that coach car, you'd have tremendous uh, stress on the coupling system uh, on that grade. Mm-hmm. And also for safety, uh, with that in mind, if you have the heavier engine behind the lighter coach, you have more uh, safety uh, fail-safes, essentially. So the coaches all have their own brakes, 
and by not being uh, connected together, because while they're touching, they're not hitched together in any way. The engine, because the whole track is on a grade, mm-hmm. the engine just sits behind that coach and, and pushes it up the whole time. And then when they come down, the coach rests on the engine yep. uh, with the diesels, and the, it does the braking uh, through the hydraulic system, or in the case of the steam, you're actually adding brake in the coach. There's a crew member on board, the brakeman actually manually breaks that coach all the way down the mountain. Uh, if you weren't doing anything in that coach, the uh, overspeed would, would get to be really intolerable. So the engine only has a certain amount of holdback power with our heavier coaches that we that we run today. And are the brakes like we would think of as traditional like brake pads, or is it all based on the, the COG um, technology? Um, it's, it's a hybrid, so it is brake pads on a drum for these uh, manual brake coaches, the ones that would be on the steam trips. Mm-hmm. And the axle that that's mounted on is adjacent to the gear. So essentially you're, you're braking on that same axle where the gear is mounted. So there wouldn't be any friction braking force going on the wheel per se, just like the wheel's not driving. So you're braking just adjacent to that drive gear and stopping that whole shaft from turning or slowing the, the turning of that shaft. And then all of the diesels and our newer coaches do have an air brake set up that can pretty much lock and hold very quickly anywhere on the mountain. And those are, quite similar to what you would see on a mainline train or, or even on like a tractor trailer with the, uh, the air cans. Awesome. And the, um, for, for people that want to purchase tickets. So essentially you can, you can buy tickets to go up to Mount Washington. You can do winter up to, uh, do you, you go to the summit in winter? Or you go just to Jacob's ladder, right? Uh, we go just a little below Jacob's. We have an area called Wombeck yeah. station. Wombeck station. Yeah. Wombeck, which is about 4,000 feet roughly on yep. the side of the mountain. We've, kind of built a, a nice uh, destination there where there are level platforms that you can enjoy the views from. There's warming huts, a little fire pit. Yeah, there's a fire pit. It's a cool, and then you can also, like, there's, it's very entertaining because you can see all the hikers, like, d- doing the uh, sort of the, the the death march at the finish of their hike, <laughs> and then you can see all the skiers, uh, you know, going up and going down, and it's, it's a, there's a lot going on in that area. Um but if you're so, if you're interested in the cog, essentially, you can buy tickets online, or you can go to you can drive right up, go to Marshfield Base Station. It's not always guaranteed that you're going to have available tickets. You sell out, I'm assuming, in certain days. But you can go there, sure. and then when you do take the the cog, there's a um, in the in the the coach, there's somebody that will give you sort of like a informational um, tour and do a little bit of entertainment when you're riding up. Yes, uh, we like to have. Uh, that as one of the the driving aspects of the, the experience, and there there's a crew member that will give a narration that's a little different every time. Uh, each crew member has their own approach, so if you do visit more than once, it won't necessarily be the same uh, spiel. That's you know, it's certainly not a script. Everyone comes up with their own approach based on a loose uh, outline, mm-hmm. and they'll do everything from a little bit of history to a little bit of the mechanical. And then a little bit of the natural elements that are, are going on and what you can see in flora. And uh, there's, it's basically an individualized approach that can change based on the weather and, and what experience is going on that day. Yeah. And you get a huge mix of people. I'm, I'm assuming you'll get like, you know, locals that want to go up there and then you get a lot of tourists. Uh, but it really is great. It's, it gives you, it's sort of like the same thing as the auto road as it gives people and i know we're hikers and we're like you know we're purists and we want people to like you know we don't want anything on our mountains but like you know there's a lot going on mount washington we just we can give we can give access to like other people um on mount washington but it's great that they you can get people up there and i think in the early days 
you know, right before, right as it was opening too, it was like it gave people more access. And I do think people need to think from the perspective of uh, there was a population of activists in the late 1800s, early 1900s that were responsible for protecting these mountains that we love. And I think I would guarantee you that a lot of the people that were involved in protecting these mountains, it wasn't all just hikers and outdoors people. It was people that had gone up on the cog or the auto road and realized like just how majestic this is. So I do think that, you know, hikers are, there's a lot of purist hikers, but I do think that there's a lot of benefit for giving people access that wouldn't otherwise be able to hike up. Correct. Yeah. The accessibility is a big thing because not everyone is, is necessarily able to hike, like you said, and it'll give people an exposure to an alpine zone uh, that they couldn't normally experience firsthand. And as long as they respectfully conduct themselves while they're there and then and, and learn about it, it's a great window that can be open to folks that, that wouldn't have that access. And, you know, I agree. I don't, I don't want to see uh, unchecked development in the mountains. Mount Washington has this history associated with it. And if, you know, there's one peak that is sort of ultra developed in a sense uh, that Mount Washington is with a road and, and a large summit building and a railway uh, and it's there and the other um, peaks are kept wild, then, then that's something that uh, I think is acceptable. You know, as long as you're not spreading this unchecked development across the entire uh, national forest, which, I mean, you couldn't build this railway today uh, if it was uh, an operation that was just being conceived of now. Um, and that's a good thing. You know, it, it gives that chance to experience it to those that wouldn't have it. But, you know, you don't want this everywhere. You don't want this on every single peak in the White Mountains for, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I would say as a hiker, so if the hikers that are listening to this, I think definitely I would recommend if you want to climb Mount Washington, especially if you want to do it in a way that's, you know, it's never going to be safe, but I think one of the safer routes, in my opinion, and one of the best ways to do it in winter is to actually, and I mean, you can park at the Emanusik lot, it'll it'll add, I think, an extra like quarter of a mile, a half mile, but I prefer actually to go to the Cog Railway lot and start mm-hmm. my day there because it does, it is a, you know, there's no, you don't have to worry about break-ins, there's going to be people around, so it's it's pretty mm-hmm. safe. It does, it is a fee. I think it's like ten dollars or something. It's pretty easy to just pay it. Yeah. Um, and then the nice thing about it is that you get access to the Marshfield Base Station, so you can use the bathroom. You can change, get ready in there. You can get a nice hot chocolate. You can get a hot dog. Uh, whatever you want is available. And then people don't understand this. They always ask this question, but there's a trail system from the Cog that connects. It's called the I think the Amanusik, um connector trail or something like that so essentially like you can park at the cog railway the hiker parking is in the lower lot you just go up you can stop at the the, the base station use the bathroom and then from there you can go up amanusik and then summit you know monroe washington and then you can hike back down the cog railway um yeah. typically you'll you'll sort of stay to the right hand side and then you do have to cross over when you get to um, Jacob's Ladder, but it's an enjoyable hike. It's you know it's steeper than you used to, but it's a great way to experience um, Mount Washington in the winter. And I've done it. I think I've done it for the last four or five years, and it's 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 a great area. So I think hikers have benefited quite a bit. Um, it's it, and you know the lot's always going to be mm. plowed too. That's the nice thing too. Yeah, I'll bring up uh, my guests on snowmobiles too. They love mm. it just for a nice respite from the cold and hit the food and the, the gift shop and everybody loves it in the Hampshire gift shop, right? Yeah. Oh, Am I right? 
And we, we, I'll be honest, we had a little pushback when we started charging again for it. So hiker parking historically was charged at the car going back for a while. And then it was uh, abolished for a, a period. And then when it was brought back more recently ish, there was some pushback from folks, you know, Oh, why are you guys charging? What is this? But in turn we are. So we actually plowed that entire six mile base road. Yes. Um, so we took that over. We are basically con- subcontracted by the state to keep that clear so that we can pay more uh, deliberate attention to it. Uh, because of the, the microclimate there, it, it gets pounded with, with snow when other areas aren't necessarily seeing anything. So we can kind of stay on top of it better. And then, of course, we'll keep that lot plot out. And like you said, access to the building. So, yes, we're charging that $10, but we're also providing these services. And if folks don't want to take advantage of that, they like you said, they can certainly park at the ammo lot for the, the five, or I think it's, yes, uh, USFS $5 uh, fee instead. Yeah. But we are, we feel like we do offer some things that, uh, you know, you get your money's worth for that $10 with the, the nice warm heated building and the bathrooms, the gift shop, uh, the, the security, although we do patrol that area. So like you said, that you don't have to worry about someone breaking into a car there, certainly. Yeah, and most importantly, as a hiker, like you save about a quarter of a half mile or a half mile from of extra hiking, which is critical to me. Yeah. I'm, even though I'm a hiker, I'm still lazy. <laughs> we find that a lot. You know, even folks they don't want to park in the hiker lot; they want to come up. And I understand. You know, they want to park right next to the building, yes, and then jump on that that ammo connector or jump on the jewel connector there. And you tell them, no, I'm sorry, you got to move your car down to the hiker lot so that we can keep this for the train passengers and make sure all the hikers are there and, and keep it separate. And most of the people, you know, nine times out of 10, they'll gladly go down there to the hiker lot and understand, but you always get someone that that extra, uh, thousand, feet, whatever it is, that's just, just a deal breaker for them. And they'll get really agitated about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I you know it is a low, I will, I will say, I do think like the first time I did it, I could park in the upper lot and then they did switch it to the lower lot, but it's a, yeah, it's a little bit of a walk. It's like two minutes. It's not a big deal. Yeah. So, but it's great. And then you can get hot chocolate. You can show. I, one time we did hang out at the, uh, at the base station afterwards cause we were ahead of some other hikers. So we, we waited there and it was kind of fun to watch everything. There's a lot going on. So in the winter time, you've got like the skiers that are, that are teeing up. You get a lot of people that are skinning up. I think mm-hmm. you can take, you can actually take the, the railway up if you're a skier and then get off and ski, right? That's right. We, we've tried to keep this, uh, under wraps for a while because we weren't sure how to manage it but now we, we want the word to get out that we do offer rides up for skiers a lot of people want to get themselves up there they want to skin up but for those yeah. that want to use the train like a ski lift you can buy a, a ticket to our Wombeck station and you get two runs for the price of, of that one round trip ticket because you're not coming down so we'll give you two rides up essentially two lifts up to that point and some folks will use that as a jumping off point they'll mm-hmm. ride up to Wombeck and then they'll continue skinning from there higher and some will just take that rip down from Wombeck Station down what we call Cold Spring Hill, that uh, real first uh, sharp uh, ascent there right back to the base station and then hit it again. So, yeah, you can basically use the uh, train as a an antique uh, ski lift and, and get a nice warm heated train ride up to uh, there to jump off your skiing adventure. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that's great about in the winter, well, actually all seasons, is you're guaranteed to see a moose every time that you ride the Cog Railway. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, I won't give maybe too much away, but it, it is guaranteed. If you're looking out the first few minutes of the ride, <laughs> a moose will be there. 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Um, some other events that you have. So we, you actually started partnering with um, with our friend Christina. So uh, there's a race the cog event. So can you talk a little bit about like you know your memory or recollection from concept to the first time you've done it? Now I think it's the second year that we've 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 had it running up there. Yeah, yeah, we're going into the third one this coming June. So, if you're into the the ultra running events and the the crazy you know trail running stuff, this is a unique one. For those that don't know about it, it's so it's called Race to Super Cog. Cool. It's June 23rd. That's uh, Sunday, June 23rd. And essentially, what it is is you're running alongside our our right of way. So right next to the tracks is a crude, and I'll use this term loosely, trail. You know, I believe it shows up on all trails and things like that, which is sort of funny but it, it's not a maintained trail and it's, it's more for our access to work on the tracks we certainly invite people to use it and uh use that as a as a means of access both uh, in the winter and the in the summer and this race will run right up it's about 2.75 miles to reach the summit from the base on this route and you're talking about a 3500 foot elevation gain and the terrain's pretty rough it's a mixture of dirt sort of loose talisy stuff at one point that, you know, when you get next to Burt's Arena, it is pretty um, loose through there above Jacob's ladder. Yep. And, and it does finally get a little uh, more relenting when it, you pitch over what we call skyline. And there's that last uh, just under a mile push to the summit from there. When you start getting uh, parallel with Gulf side and, and whatnot. And it's a crazy run. Our train goes up in about 40 to 45 minutes, the diesel locomotive. So you're essentially racing against that train to try to beat that train to the summit. So you're talking that kind of gain, that kind of distance in 40 to 45 minutes. And crazy. Uh, it's, it's pretty demanding. And if you're in that, if you're into that elite uh, category where you can really run at that level, then you're racing the train. But folks, there's also what they call the chill wave. And you can come out just for the experience you maybe know you're not going to beat the train, but you want to run that route. You want to have that experience. And there's plenty of folks in that group as well. And it, it's it's a great event. We do it uh, the whole morning and folks come together. And, and you know, Christina is great. Uh, White Mountain mm. Endurance. And you can sign up and, and be, be a part of it. Yeah, I was uh, fortunate enough to, to DJ that last one this right. uh, this year. And um that was great. So I would I just want to clarify things here. So we had Joe Gray yeah. take the lead for the men and then Amber Ferreira took it this past year. Did they physically beat the train or did the train come in first? So what happened? The first year Joe yeah. beat the train by almost a minute. Uh, you know, pretty head of, you know, soundly beat the train. And then, so you guys got a chip on your shoulder. <laughs> and uh, long story short, all the diesels are pretty much the same. We actually build them ourselves, right? really. So they're all pretty much the same, but there is one that is inherently faster than the rest. And we're talking by uh, 4.76 miles an hour to maybe 4.9 miles an hour, something. You know, holy like moly. That. Yeah. So I wanted that locomotive in the mix for this past year's event, and it wasn't possible to have maintenance things that were going on. So I will, um, yeah, it's unofficial, but I may have uh, That's made so funny. the engine we used that day behave like the one I wanted to be in there in terms of uh, adjusting its maximum speed. Oh, so oh this is a riot. He's messing with I the governor. It, but uh, <laughs> I might have put it on a performance enhancer for that, that, uh, that, that trip, that one trip right there. Oh, wow. 
Oh my God, that's so funny. You guys are great. <laughs> I'm telling you, that is so much fun to to hear the whistle blow to start the race and then everybody's like hell yeah let's go yeah that was like nothing oh yeah there, there, there's no energy I mean Mount Washington road race is one thing but there's nothing like man versus machine <laughs> yeah. like the Terminator <laughs> it was so cool yeah That's so awesome. cool I just I, I had a chat with the engineer uh, his name was Mike that was running the trip that day this past year and I said Mike we got beat last year <laughs> I don't want to get through this year. So when you get across that switch, we do have a switch coming out of the base, and there's a the protocol where you have to go a switch speed that is uh, approximately one and a half miles an hour, and that is to ensure oh. that uh, the train behaves properly in, in the part of the track that is intended to move. So I, yeah. I said to him, when you come out and you clear that switch, you yeah. normally we have a ramped acceleration where we gradually get up to speed, up the bridge, and then across. Um I told him to 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 kind of be a, a little more liberal with the uh, the throttle there, and, <laughs> and take right off. And so you can see, I took a video of it because it was it's exciting when that race starts, and you, know, you see that the queue of runners all ready to go. You see the train, you know, traversing the switch, and then as soon as he mm-hmm. hears it, he laces on the horn and just accelerates. I mean, we're talking five miles an hour. Yeah, that's yeah. all they do. You know, oh, yeah. From one point five to five quickly, it's it's kind of exciting. <laughs> yeah. I have another idea, and like you like might like this uh, with your new video game thing. But you guys could do the old Donkey Kong and start like dropping barrels and like oil <laughs> yeah, and stuff idea. like that. <laughs> Slow banana the runners peel. down. What do you think? Yeah. No. Yeah, we could we get some banana peels, chuck them out. <laughs> the runners are like, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up for this. But actually, that that is a good question, Andy. Is um, so yes. how many? How do you guys handle like the load balancing? Because I do feel like there's a lot of lollygaggers up in the like summit that may not, you, you know. Do you get to the point where like you've got too many people up in the summit that aren't taking? You know, you go you go with a half full train, and then um, you know at the end of the day, all of a sudden you find like, oh no, I got to push two more trains up. Or are you pretty good about telling people like you know you got to get on the train, or we're holding a train until it's full? So we actually sell the round trip as a three-hour experience so just like you have a departure that leaves the base at a given time that's then paired with your time coming off the summit okay so that tries to cut uh, into people staying too long up there because then that makes it impossible for us to plan yeah. how many folks are gonna you know on a good day they could be up there all day and then we have to fetch them with a train or you know multiple trains potentially late in the day uh we get folks that will sort of ignore that rule and then they're put on standby. So the method of discouragement, I guess, is uh, if you miss your train off the summit and that, that one that leaves an hour after your arrival, essentially, you're then boarded on subsequent trains as availability allows. So obviously all the ticketed passengers will be allowed on first. And then if there's room, you'll be put on standby and then, then you're put in your party might get split up. You certainly won't have the same seat that you had on the way up. But we do get folks that will miss trains. We'll get... We do one-ways as well, so that's another. If we have extra room on the way down, we sell a one-way ticket, and hikers will utilize that. Okay. So we just try to make sure that we interface with the hikers, and a lot of folks sadly don't understand. Uh, you ask them what trail they hiked up, and they look at you like, what are you talking about? Uh, or they can't remember what that's called, and they you know, try to give them clues. Okay, what was at the base when you started? Was there a train or not? Was you know, do you remember anything about Pinkham Notch or Joe Dodge? Do you remember anything about Amanusik? And then some of them 
will get it. And some of them really have no idea because if we take this one way on the train and they go down with us and they hiked up, you know, through uh, Tuckerman's, the yeah, Tuckerman's 20 river, miles away and you're way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they don't, they, especially if they're not from around you, they don't understand that. And then yeah. they're kind of yeah. left in the, yeah, the they're going to blame you, like, you made me come down here, right. you know, so. so. We try to ask that, okay, how did you hike up, or where did you, what trail were you on? And if we can get them to answer that, then we know we can guide them, and then we, we could send them down on the, the road shuttle uh, if they came up on that side. But if they came up on the west side, we'll gladly take them down. But sadly, we get a lot of folks, they have no map, they have no knowledge of what trail they hiked up, and you ask them, and they they think there's only one way to get up and they they were on it and they have they're woefully unaware of, of what's going on yeah yeah it's it's crazy you must have like so many stories like that um <laughs> do you uh do you find like a lot of the workers um that you work with is, is are you a lot of you guys hikers um no i would say it's i won't it's not the minority but uh for real serious hikers it's probably myself and just a, a couple others. Some of the seasonal folks are, are, are pretty avid hikers of the year round folks. There's, there's probably less. Um, we have a guy, Ray, who has been worked here for quite a while and he, he uh, is active on the steam train and he runs the Wombeck station a couple days a week in the winter and maintains the fire pit up there. Mm-hmm. And he, he's a big hiker. And he, he likes to get out. He, he likes to uh, get out there on bushwhacks and stuff. And we, we chat a lot about various adventures, but I would say there aren't a lot of us that are super into it, but there's enough of us that you know, we, we shoot stuff around and um, you know share stories and, and uh, ideas for, for what to do next. Yeah, and I know there was a, a few years back. Like, um, so before we talk about the ownership, so the ownership has passed around a little bit, but like the, the ownership's been pretty stable for 45 years, 40 years or so. Um, so Wayne Presby, the Presby family has owned uh, the Cog Railway and local family. I think they own various businesses, but they took over ownership in a partnership in like 1983. But he's he's owned it sort of outright for the last 10 years or so, I think, right? Yeah, 2017, okay. he bought out the Bedores that were the other uh, major controlling interest. Okay. And then more recently, he's started, there's been some small stakeholders that he's tried to consolidate uh, the ownership from in, in more recent times. But essentially, the Presby family, in all true purposes, is the sole owner at this point with some real minority uh, interest, I think, still might be kicking around there. Got it. And then he, so he's been the driving force around like the um, building out like a lot of offerings that are um, available in winter now. So I think people think like, you know, it's not just seasonal now. There's a lot going on in the winter that people can check out between, you know, the skiing, snowboarding, snowshoeing, um, hiker parking, and then the Wombat Station trips. And Wombat Station is at 4,000 feet. So you you can you can catch an undercast. You can, you can see all oh, yeah. kinds of amazing views. I mean, you're really up there. Um, but he's also explored the idea of like trying to, um, set up some overnight options. And I think that originally there was some talk about, um, a a structure, but then that was changed to potentially just, um, having more like, I think, um, overnight friendly train cars. I don't know where things are from that perspective, but I think one of the things I want to call out is, you know, hikers were pushing back on some of these ideas, but one of the things that I, I always talk about when this, I talk about this with the AMC, I talk about this with the auto road, I talk about this with the cog is that you guys um, will step in and hike, uh, help with hiker rescues 
And you know, I think at least every year we've had a we've had a story where somebody gets in trouble on Mount Washington, and you guys will step in. So I guess two questions for you is one is are there any are there still plans to do um, overnight stays somehow? And then two, can you talk about like so the, sort of your engagement with doing different rescues and working with fishing game? Sure. Uh, right now, the sort of discussion about an overnight uh, arrangement is. In a, in a holding phase. So we don't really have the infrastructure in place at our base to construct what we would need to construct to make that a reality right now. So there are a lot of things we would need to do that are on our short-term plans at the base in order to realize that as a, as a goal that would work towards the initial plan that was uh, heavily maligned and pushed back on was a physical structure, like you mentioned, at Skyline, so roughly 5,000 feet mm-hmm. on the west side, and it would have a degree of visibility from various places. And it was understandable why there was pushback to that proposal. Uh, that's uh, long since been struck um, from our uh, goals and intentions completely. And the iteration that sort of survives today but is in an indefinite hold would be uh, sleeping cars at what we would call the Lizzie's area. So the yep. Lizzie Bourne Memorial marker there that's trackside, just uh, down mountain of that would be a siding uh, or a couple of sidings with sleeper cars that could accommodate uh, overnight guests that would not be physically built on the mountain, but would actually be rail cars that would be movable. Uh, so that, that sort of sits. I think that's a fantastic idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's fantastic. It's a great solution. It pulls, it, the goal of it would be to pull some of the uh, overcrowding off the summit as well. Uh, the summit is a such a highly visited area between us and the road and hikers in the summer that if there was another spot just below the summit where folks could sort of uh, congregate and, and, you know, there could be uh, a siding there for our trains, we could alleviate some of the pressure from that. But like I said, it's something that's, in an indefinite hold right now just because uh, there's a lot of things we have to consider with with making that a reality and also a lot of uh, infrastructure and planning that goes into building those uh, sleeper cars if that if we're going to go and uh, embrace that uh, plan got it yeah and then obviously like you guys are available for search and rescue and and helping out so that's sort of like I, i know that there was you know some a lot of feedback from the hiking community around like the the plans uh, that we talked about. Not my pushback has always been like, look, you know, keep in mind that when people get in trouble, like the, these organizations are stepping up um, mm-hmm. for sure. And I think you guys have at least like two or three a year, actually, that I can think of that you're you're helping out with. So, can you talk a little bit about how that happens? Like what um, what the engagement is like with fishing game and and what you what you have to do when when the calls come in? Sure. So our general manager, who I work closely with, uh, Ryan Presby, he has a law enforcement background. Yeah. So he has all of the contact info and the inroads into Fish and Game. And if a rescue comes up where we could facilitate assistance with, so if it's something on more of the west side or the approach would make sense with us, he'll get a call from um, either Mark Ober or, or someone that will sort of orchestrate this and uh express what they need and we'll say if we can provide it or not. And, and we always are willing to help. So if, if they say they want our help, we'll, we'll jump in and, and do what needs to be done. So starts with that phone call to our GM and then he'll then orchestrate a train crew to go up. Sometimes it's himself and uh, another crew member, Josh, who lives very close. And uh, I've been on one or two 
and it's just having the staff available that's willing and and we do have a number of folks that are super willing to to jump into this stuff so we'll get the train together uh sometimes fishing game will meet us at the base and they'll ride up sometimes they're just requesting a way to bring an injured hiker down without having to hike them down so sometimes they're already on scene somewhere we're going to and they might get them to the track uh, and whatever's feasible, and then we'll get them on the train and transport them down. And there have been a, a number of notable ones uh, that we've assisted in. And you're right, it is a few every year. Sometimes it's just as simple as a twisted knee. Uh, sometimes fishing games not even involved will get flagged down by someone on Gulf side or the West side, and they'll come over and, and we can get them up on the train bring them back to base but often we're working close with fish and game to coordinate an approach and we've expressed to them please use us you know if you've got a rescue attempt that uh using us as your approach makes more sense than going up the road and is quicker than going up the road by all means you know get in touch with us and we're, we're ready and willing to assist uh to make sure that we can provide every resource we can to to make a rescue more feasible or to make it more smooth to get somebody out Wow. And do you, uh, the few times that you've been on, are you like, is your adrenaline pumping? Are you like, oh man, this is, this is crazy. Yeah, no, I, I get excited. I just very recently, uh, got my wilderness first aid and, you know, re-upped my CPR. So I, the rescue world is something that appeals to me. I, I would love to be on search and rescue, but I don't have a lot of time to actualize that. Yeah. So helping in this arena is a great way for me to help because it's it's interlaced with my work where I often am, especially in the busy season where it's uh, a lot of long days. But, you know, no matter how long the day is, the core group of us will we'll jump right in uh, whatever's needed and, and help facilitate something on the side of the mountain to really uh, offer what we can to help. Yeah, yeah. There's a fair amount of rescues that go on on the Jewel Trail and Gulf Side and um, the west side. So there, there's a lot of activity. Matter of fact, I don't know if you listened to early, way back in the early days of the show, I talked about like a, a couple of, I stumbled on a couple of now friends of mine who had found an old backpack that was like a mile up the jewel trail that was involved in a rescue of a, a guy that had been hiking with his sons. They got separated in the parking lot. He went back up and almost died, but um, he did survive. But we found the old, we found his backpack that had been abandoned that he, he had lost. So there's a lot that goes on up there. Oh, yeah. And we want to see us as something that's woven into the hiker community where we'll work with hikers. We're there as a resource. Uh, don't count on us being a one-way opportunity because if we can't reach the summit for uh, weather reasons, we we won't we just won't be there. So yeah. I always say, don't plan your trip. Don't plan, okay, I'm going to hike up and take the cog down. Use it as a, as a, not a last resort, but an option. I wouldn't say base your hike around that just because there are things that can change. But we want to work with both hikers and and with um, search and rescue to kind of not create, you know, we don't want this divisive, um, you know, hikers versus the cog. You know, there's the whole moon, the cog thing that's been in tradition for a long time and sort of a contentious (laughs) relationship between the hiking community and the cog. We want to really knock a lot of that down and, and, you know, provide access points for hikers and um, kind of bridge everything together and and smooth it over and have a, a better uh, relationship with the hiking community moving forward. Yeah, 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 and like I said, you know, you guys are stepping up, helping with search and rescues. Um, you know, there's uh, the 
the offerings that you have for hikers for convenience, um, especially the parking area there. And then, you know, hiking down the cog is like an experience. Like I tell people, like you, you need to do that at least once in your life because it's such a, um, it's such an amazing view and it's a unique view. And the one thing I love about hiking down the cog, especially when you get a good view, is like you can look at Marshfield Station and just. Um, you know, it looks like so far away when you start and then you start getting closer and closer. But it's just, it's such a unique experience to have something that you can sort of baseline against to say like, all right, that's my destination. Usually you're doing that when you're going uphill, but not a lot of times right. you get that opportunity when you're going downhill. So yeah. it's just unique. Um, question about the decision making for like bad weather and things like that. So mm-hmm. what do you guys, how do you guys manage? I'm assuming you, you you're, uh, looking at the weather all the time but like what is the tolerance for saying like okay we can no longer go up on the trains because the wind is too far or too fast or the the weather's too bad sure we work really close with the mount washington observatory i have their forecast uh is on frequent refresh on my phone on my computer wherever i'm at and i'll call them at times to get more um detailed information about conditions that are occurring up there and sometimes ground conditions and kind of build a lot of that into a decision-making process when the weather does turn uh, foul. The biggest thing that will stop the train is wind. So we'll run into a multitude of, you know, snow ice and uh, conditions like that. And it doesn't really affect the operation because of the gear drive. Uh, it, it's not like you're going to lose traction or anything like that or slip because of the penetration into the rack. So the issues we're concerned about have to do with wind primarily and the wind load on the train, but more particularly uh, the experience of the guests stepping off the train at the summit and being hit with that wind up there. While the train can withstand uh, winds up to and just over 100 miles an hour, your average person doesn't want to be smacked in the face with that and, and as soon as they're stepping out of the rail car at the top. So we do have a cutoff where if we have sustained winds, in excess of 74 miles an hour with that sort of category one hurricane threshold, that's when we'll pull stuff back and the train will operate, but it will operate to what we have that uh, skyline point, which is uh, just above tree line around uh, 5,000 feet, a little above tree line, but it's at a point on the, on the coal between Washington and clay where it's yeah. sheltered enough that you're not going to get bombarded with wind the same way you would further up and towards the summit. So it's kind of what we have a safe zone there where we can still give you a journey uh, pretty high up and still get that uh, Alpine zone without getting into the worst of the uh, exposure there. And then the, the price gets adjusted downward a little bit if that, if that has to happen. All right. What's the, um, when the, even on a, not necessarily just on a bad day, but on a, any day when you've got the, the passengers that are, are clearly not hikers, like what is their reaction when they get to that like little section of Gulf side where they start seeing like the hikers up next to the, uh, the train, do they, are they all like, what are those, those people are crazy or are they, do they oh, yeah. have a common reaction? <laughs> yeah, no, that is, that is a very common, uh, reaction they have is, look at the crazy people or, you know, what are those crazy people doing? I mean, if it's a bluebird day, mm-hmm. you know, there's not a lot of reaction to it, but you know, it's those days where it's pea soup visibility and someone, you know, crosses under West side or, or comes across um, Trinity Heights and, and, and you have, they pop out of the fog and then the, the train ridership go, Whoa, where do they come from? What are they doing up here? Yeah. Uh, people hike up here in this. And, you know, it may, may not even be that disagreeable. It might just be a, a low vis day with calmish wind and temperatures agreeable, but yeah, that they, they, most of our ridership is, is not 
uh, you know, doesn't have an overlap with, with a hiking community. So they see folks that are hiking Mount Washington as extremists and, you know, real well-versed alpinists uh, that are um, part of a, a, a unique elite, which is, you know, certainly not the case, but that that's how they see it from their perspective. Don't and, tell them, don't give it away. <laughs> <laughs> I get that since I, like, I'll be up there eating my hot dog and like, uh, you know, cloudy weather or something. And someone will be like, you walk up here. I'll be like, yeah, <laughs> yeah they're amazed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They get, they get uh, very interested. So, wow, that's interesting. So um, for listeners, I think, you know, if you're, if you've got somebody in your family that doesn't like it, they're not into hiking, but they, you want to give them a taste of what we experience. Experience. Like, I think the cog is a great way to do that. Like, I'm planning on taking my dad up um, the next time he comes up for sure because he's always talking about how he, you know, he's like wants to see these mountains. And he's been up on the auto road a couple of times, but I haven't taken him up on the cog. So it's a great way to get like older family members or younger family members or people that just aren't into hiking. You know, maybe you can get them to, you know, into the hiking bug if you if you can take them up on the cog. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and if if you want a, a free ride. Join search and rescue. Great. <laughs> 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 we need the help. Yeah. And then, so you guys are pretty focused on safety. Um, and you have to get in a lot of detail on this, but I do, you know, we did at one point cover them. You know, there's been a couple of incidents over the years, long time ago. We're talking like, you know, years and years ago. Um, but you put in a lot of sort of safety uh, protocols and mm-hmm. I'm assuming like there's a lot of different um you know, you're the guy that's in charge of like testing all the safety equipment and all the, all that. So, um, you know, talk a little bit about sort of safety from uh, from your perspective. Sure. I mean, there's that adage that safety is number one, and that's that's sort of cliched, but it, I mean, it really is. Everything starts from that. Uh, the crew's first responsibility is safety of themselves, the guest, and the equipment, and then. Uh, second to that is the guest experience, but nothing will ever compromise the safety aspect and the vigilance that's required to operate a train on the side of a mountain. So we do have various protocols that, that have to be adhered to in order to ensure that, that that safety remains a constant. And that includes stopping at all the switches, the parts of the track that are designed to move. So you're coming to a positive stop and confirming everything's aligned before proceeding. Uh, there are safety features of both the coaches and the engines that are tested before each trip and inspections that are done both at the base and the summit uh, before the next leg of the journey begins and walk arounds by the crew just check everything over and the diesels are all computerized so the system that the engineers uh, have essentially in their face will give them real-time thresholds for temperatures pressures and so forth that they can then um monitor for the whole trip so vigilance is key you know this this isn't a uh, subway that um has signals and signal control and things like that you know you really have to be engaged with the operation but you know we're we have a good crew that looks out uh for safety as number one and make sure that they're adhering to protocols that are set forth to uh make sure that each trip while it might be different in the, the experience side, is sort of cookie cutter the same in terms of the protocol side of things. Yeah, you must have some amazing mechanics too, right? Oh, yeah. The, the crew here, I mean, the, the COG is a long-standing tradition of doing things in-house. We're really self-sufficient and independent in that regard. We have our own shop facility that, uh, you know, talk about the, the Presby family innovation. Just a couple of years ago, this massive uh, facility went up at the base where we can really, with some state-of-the-art tools, work on our fleet, in um, in a much more agreeable environment, uh, our old shop is on is a 
very historic building. It's been there since the 1800s, and it's a great place to uh, to visit to get a look at what happened. But we were working in it up until just a few years ago. So this new facility and our mechanics that work out of it, I mean, they're they're a great core group of guys and everything from uh, guys that work on the diesel engines to machinists, carpenters, you name it. We we try to keep it in house. We outsource pretty much as little as we can or a little as, as we need to, but we're, we're doing a lot of our own fabricating, uh, right under one roof down there. Well, yeah. And there's a lot of like in the, uh, at the base station, there's a lot of displays around the history of, uh, the railway. And it sounds like, like you can, you can look at the original, um, uh, train and then you can get into that older building that you just talked about. That one isn't quite where we're trying to work on a system where we can formalize the shop tour experience. But okay. right now, um, not something that's that we're inviting most of the general public to partake in in terms of a shop tour. But the museum that's in the Marshfield building does give a great timeline uh, going back to the inception. And you can see how the railway has sort of evolved along the way. There's a lot of interactive displays and, and videos that run on a loop in there. And, of course, uh, the... Pepper Sass locomotive, the original engine, is on display at the base right track side where, where folks board so they can see that awkward uh, engine that got it all started. So even folks that don't ride, they come up and they, they walk through the museum and, and they can get a whole experience of the base even without taking a train ride necessarily. Yeah, no, I love going in there before hikes and just checking everything out and um, you know getting something to eat and then even even better stop using the bathroom before the hike. <laughs> it's much better than the Mike's, Amanusik um, parking lot um, privy. Oh, yeah. Mike's priorities. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> exactly. After that long drive up, I'm like, bathroom immediately. Um, I like right. a good pre-hike bathroom, but when I'm out there, I'm a big uh, poop-in-the-woods guy, so oh, I do like it. Okay. <laughs> Pretty much every hike. You should, meet, uh, you should meet Dave Shits in the Woods. Every hike, really? I really should, yeah, because yeah. every hike, I like to take a, a nice... Uh, Nice number two out there. Pretty much every time I get out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I end up doing that occasionally too. But like every time I do it, I like no matter how far off the trail I go, somebody comes walking along and I get a little <laughs> nervous. So, um, but we have to send you a link to the crap strap. Then you'll have to see this oh, product yes. that um, you can use. So wow. I've heard of that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, the crap strap. So um, so just be careful if you're walking around Burt Ravine. Andy's been there. So mm. <laughs> <laughs> I tried not to go above tree line. Yes. Times where it was an emergency, but yeah, exactly. Try not to. <laughs> yeah. All right. So this is great. So we'll put um, all the links to the um, activities and, and, and ticket sales and all that stuff on the Mount Washington um, cog railway, you know, hikers, uh, like I said, you know, accessibility, helping out with search and rescue, you, you know, stop mooning the train. We're not doing that anymore. <laughs> You know, these are our friends, so be nice. Right. And, um, yeah, definitely check it out. And like I said, write a passage hike for me absolutely in the winter, parking at the cog, going up the ammo, and then uh, coming down the cog railway. Don't fall into Burt Ravine. You got to be careful there. Stomp. You got to bring your um, your crampons for that section. But otherwise, it's pretty safe. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Anything yeah. else we missed, Andy? Uh, no, I think that that pretty much covers everything. We invite folks to check us out. Uh, if, if anyone wants the website, it is thecog, T-H-E-C-O-G.com, and that'll have our schedule, ticket information. We have uh, information for hikers up there. I mean, you can just go there to buy tickets, but if you poke around on the site, there's actually a lot of information there. So, yeah, thecog.com. 
Yeah, yeah, and that uh, that Wombach Station section there is actually it's actually perfect. Like a lot of times in the winter, like going, it's too much. It's like it's crazy up there in the summit. Like it's been a good week, but a lot of times, like it's not it's not t shirt weather. Like it's pit, so it's it's nice to yeah. just go to that Wombach. You got the fire pit there, and you're good to go. It's enough in the winter. Yeah, it's a great ambiance there, and, and you can get that mountain experience without you know going up into the alpine zone where it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, you know, we'd love to run to the summit all year, but it's just not something that the mountain uh, agree would agree with uh, a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of the hikers too in the winter, like it's it is nice to uh, you know not, you don't have to wait in line for the pitchers and all that stuff. So, yeah. um, it, I think it's it's a good balance for sure. Mm-hmm. So, stop. Any questions for Andy before we move on to? Uh, we'll just do a quick uh, hiker communication segment, and then we'll wrap up. No, I think we're good. Um, yeah, come over and say hi if I'm fortunate enough to uh, be invited back for the DJing for that uh, race, the cog. I was going to say, are you going to DJ again? I hope so. We'll see. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was such a great time. I actually have a funny story. Uh, Mr. Presby Sr. Mm. came over uh, towards the end of the event, and he said, <laughs> he goes, hey, thanks for playing that Morgan Wallen song. (laughs) I'll never forget that. I'm like, all right, all right. I know what to play next year. (laughs) That was a good memory. But uh, yeah, thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, this this has been great. I'm sure the uh, listeners will love it. Yeah. Yeah, Thank you guys for having me on. I I really enjoyed it. And I I love the podcast and my girlfriend Cameron got me into you guys. And uh, it's cool. it's, It's great. Yeah. You guys, have an awesome show yeah we never imagined uh, that we'd actually get some like serious people on this on this dumb podcast but it's worked out no kidding yeah not not, so, not too bad no kidding slashers hiking topic of the week So let me ask you this. So moving into our next segment, um, we're going to talk about sort of hiker communication. Um, do, when you go out, it sounds like you do a lot of solo stuff. Do you have like an in-reach or anything, or you just rely on your cell phone? Uh, I don't have. So actually, my girlfriend and I just got um, an in-reach, so it's new to us, and I haven't used it on a hike yet. And I've, I used to be, I don't know why I was, but I used to be really stubborn uh, against uh modern technology on a hike like my phone is a tool but it's one that i don't want to rely on or really use that much other than take pictures if the battery's fine um like i'll scout stuff using like guy or all trails but i don't like to actually you know i think one hike did i actually do a navigate feature and like track my time and stuff on the phone like i try to keep that stuff to a minimum when i'm out there uh but yeah we just got one so we're, we're gonna start uh going with that and then just as an extra like form of safety out there yeah yeah well stop put together a list here of um just some pre-hike ideas and then some on hike stuff so stomp i don't know you want to go through the list here yeah sure I mean, it's always good to refresh on these ideas so pre-hike if you are going out on a hike here are a few tips Definitely you want to leave plans with your friends and family. Uh, Let them know where you're going, what you're hiking, what your anticipated start times are going to be, your anticipated end times, what gear you're taking. Uh, The gear thing is interesting. Let people know what you have, what 
color your clothing will be. If you have a water bottle, that may look a particular way. Uh, You never know if you may become a uh, subject of a search. Those details can be really helpful. Uh, Leave behind your bailout routes, uh, a plan B, uh, and also the car make and model. Okay? Simple stuff. And um, don't let ego talk you out of telling people your plans. Mm. Uh, you know, it's one of those things like, oh, I can't wait to share this on Facebook after I complete this, but nobody's going to know this one until after the fact. That's not a smart move. You definitely want to let people know ahead of time. Um, estimated times for specific locations can be handy. You know, if you think you're going to be at Lincoln Lafayette by 11 o'clock, great. Just document them, write them down. End time we mentioned. Um, the time for those aware of your plans to press the red button. This is always a con- little bit contentious and can cause problems. But if you think you have a time um, where your loved ones, friends, and family should call 911 or call the authorities, uh, try to write that down. I know that can be a little bit controversial, but it may be uh, a life-saving maneuver. I've been in this situation myself and uh, it's not comfortable, but... Yeah, that's you know, a good call. It's been, I, I, yeah. I, I probably need to reset when this is Mike on this one because um, I've never really talked about that. I just kind of assume like, okay, I'm going to be in the car by four. I'll be home by th- seven. And I usually just assume I'm going to check in with her. So I should just remind mm-hmm. her like, hey, if you haven't heard from me by like 5.30 or so, like start checking around. But I do always leave yeah. a note and I tell her who I'm hiking with and... Um, you know, how they can get in touch with those people if they need to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, any comments on that, Andy? Yeah, I, I think there's been a, a couple of occasions where uh, my girlfriend was hiking solo and, you know, of course, don't have contact. And it got to be a point at which I started to wonder about time. I wasn't worried at all. She's more than capable, but I start to wonder, like, okay, haven't heard. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, there's one occasion where I went up the trail, um, to meet her. And then there was occasion I drove, um, into Zealand to, or, um, down and, uh, to meet her coming out and she was coming out with a truck at that point. So, uh, after she did Zebon, so it was just a long day. And, but I think, mm-hmm. yeah, I think establishing, uh, when we do solo stuff, you know, yeah, unforeseen things can happen, but what would be a point at which, okay, this might be concerning versus, okay, is it just a long slog? Um, because I'm a slower hiker, you know, I'm a bigger guy, but I just kind of keep moving. So I wouldn't want anyone to get alarmed prematurely if I'm just out there on something that's more than 15 miles and taking my time. But um, at the same time, there might be a point where it's like, okay, um, concern escalates to some type of action and maybe define that. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, luckily, haven't had to test that too much on on my end. So, um, and then Stomp, you talk about um, putting notes in the windshields in your cars. Yeah. So um, yeah, I did used to do this. I don't do this as much. I don't. I definitely don't. Yeah. I, I just get paranoid that somebody may read the note and say, "Oh, I have plenty of time to take that catalytic converter." Yeah. <laughs> That is an unfortunate reality. Know. It seems like we've seen a rash of break-ins the last few years now, like ever since COVID, yeah. where hiking's exploded and popularity has exploded of being outdoors. 
So has the unfortunate other side of opportunistic people trying to, you know, do things like break into cars at trailheads and stuff like that. And, um, right. it's, it's, it's awful. And yeah, I mean, I, I think the same thought has crossed my mind. Like, oh, I don't want to give them a, an open-ended timeline to, <laughs> to start. <laughs> Let's come back after lunch. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. And then the last on my list here for the pre-hike was, uh, was hiker and climber logs. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm familiar with them at say, um, the, Cannon Cliffs lot for climbers and oh, yeah. also at Joe Dodge Lodge at, at Pinkham. Mm-hmm. You have a register you can sign in. Definitely do that. Sign in and when you come out, sign out so that they know where you're going and when you came in and, and if you haven't come out. So mm-hmm. that's always a good thing to do as well. Yeah, I'm a bit of a hypocrite because I, I think that's very important and then sure enough, the last time I went to Baxter this this past year, I uh, forgot to sign both in and out Uh going up uh, the the route we took, which was uh, going up Hamlin and, and coming down Saddle. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, sh- crap. Okay, well, at least I didn't sign in and not sign out, I suppose. It's pretty worse, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I try yeah. to be, be better with that. <laughs> yeah, and when you're bushwhacking too, like those canisters there, like, you know, mm-hmm. put your name on there, just in case, you never know. Mm-hmm. Right. So what do you do on hike? Um, I mean, there are three or four categories. You have cell phones. Not so much aware of what Androids can do, but the iPhone has um, new and developing features. There's the iPhone Emergency SOS, which is a fairly hefty price, but apparently it's satellite connected. Mm. Um, You do have your basic satellite messengers, such as Garmin's inReach units, the GPS handhelds. Uh, a few other companies, Zolio Satellite Communicator. You have the Spot X, which has been around for quite a long time. Um, and somewhere Global Hotspot. These things will let you communicate, whether it's a text or a, a pre-programmed message. Um, that's always handy. And then, of course, you have your PLBs, which I have uh, for my bushwhacking. And PLBs, personal locator beacons, are basically just help me buttons. They're SOS buttons. No communication. They're saying, I'm effed. Come and get me. I'm in trouble. And uh, the two most popular ones that uh, you'll see are the ACR Rescue Link, which runs about $400. The battery life on it run- lasts about five years. And every year you get a free renewal. You just have to fill a form out and they'll the government will send you out a new uh, registration uh, form. And then also the Ocean Signal Rescue Me PLB1 is a newer one that offers that same Help Me feature. Um, so, And then, of course, uh, Rocky Talkies. Mike, you, you added this one. Yeah, yeah. So I added this. Matter of fact, um, I was talking with... Li- so we talk about Littlefoot for the listeners that aren't aware Littlefoot is. I think she's seven years old, so she's doing, like, she's doing the grid at this point and... Um, she's almost finished with a winter 4,000 footers and she hikes with her grandparents and a, and a great crew of people, Rhonda and Joanne and George and everybody. That, matter of fact, I saw them this weekend and Kim, her grandmother had told me, she's like, you know, you should check these out. You should mention them on the show. They're called Rocky Talkies and they use them. Um, so I guess they all carry them and they have about a mile um, worth of range. So if you are hiking with people, we always tell people to stick together, but sometimes if you're hiking in a group where the pace doesn't match up, you can utilize these rocky talkies and, and stay in contact if you need to. So something were ever to happen, somebody took a wrong turn on a trail, you can you can communicate in a pretty far distance. 
Okay, so that was my question. So, do we have an idea how what the distance is? Or, I think she said a mile, maybe like a mile, yeah. a mile. Okay, yeah. that's pretty handy. Yeah, mm-hmm. So I'll check. Excellent. I, I'll put the link in the show notes so people can check it out. But um, she said she was very impressed with them. Yeah, excellent. All right, and then finally, post hike. If you call, if you let people know where you are, just uh, let them know when you're out. Text them send them an email, call them, whatever, send a satellite message on your Garmin, and definitely check out and log out of those books and registers at the trailheads when they're available. So pretty simple post hike. Yeah. Do you guys, I don't know if you guys remember this story, but there was a, there was a guy that hiked. He was a professor, I think, in Boston, and he had been out hiking. He was staying at the Omni, and he didn't bother to like text his wife. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. And then like she she saw nine one one. She's like, my husband yeah. was hiking. He disappeared. You know, they're out there like looking on. I think he was maybe on the Jewel Trail or something. So they're out there looking for this guy. And it turns mm-hmm. out that he was just you know having a spa day at the Omni. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, oh my god, that's funny. classic. So, yeah. yeah, you don't want to be that guy, no. right? I mean, enjoy your spa day, but text your wife. Yeah, like yeah. I'm off trail. I'm all good, even oh. if it's just short, short and sweet. Oh, something. My, my wife would kill me. She'd kill me. Yeah, I triggered a search and rescue for you. Yeah, oh, it wouldn't be that would be bad. <laughs> I'd have to find a new co-host, yeah. Andy. You'd be the co-host with me and uh, my <laughs> toast. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> all right. Well, Andy, this was this was awesome. Super fascinating. Um, would love to have you on again. Maybe if your girlfriend wants to come on, we can talk hiking a little bit more. She would um, love to. Yeah, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll stay in touch for sure. Um, yeah. But uh, stop. Anything else before we wrap up? Yeah, we're good. Thank you, Andy. Yeah, thank thank you. you guys very much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stump, get out there and crush some mega peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots, and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Neelan, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared. And I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us.